Radio Mano Papachango. in my natural lair, which is to say I'm sitting on the terrace of my apartment in Barcelona, <clears throat> late afternoon, beautiful sun coming in, beautiful day as usual in this city, and uh, I apologize for the delay, but uh, I know it's been a while since the last episode, which, which was recorded in Cape Town. Uh, so it's been kind of chaotic. Uh, it's probably been 10 days, maybe two weeks since I posted that one. And uh, we flew up from Cape Town by way of Dubai, landed in Barcelona about a week ago. And it's been uh, pretty hectic since then. Went to the, um, what's it called? Guardamobles in Spanish, the, uh, the storage storage place we'd rented and got all our crap out of there and so we've been um, busy redistributing our crap in our apartment and dealing with leaking roofs and uh, faulty dishwashers and all the various things that happen when you're away from an apartment for a long time so that's been interesting it's been kind of surreal honestly to come back to this place uh, where we haven't been for five years and see how little has changed. Um, it's pretty much the same plants growing on the terrace, uh, except for the weed, of course. Uh, go to the cafe, it's the same guy behind the counter making the, uh, the cortados and the cafes con leche every day. And um, yeah, it's just strange to see how the world doesn't really give a shit whether you're here or not. I guess that's the bottom line. There's a sort of assumption i think that we develop over time that somehow we're engaging with the world in a way that's reciprocal and um there's nothing like checking out for a while and then coming back to show you how clearly false that is i remember the first time i felt that when uh, i was a kid we had moved from a house where it was sort of the house I felt I grew up in, and, and I think it is because it's still the house that appears in my dreams, although I lived in probably 15 to 20 different houses as I was growing up. That's the one that I still remember. Um, so there was some something congealed in my brain when I was living, living in that house. Um, I lived there from the time I was eight till I was 15, I think, in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, also known as Fever Balls, Pennsylvania, for the um, linguistically challenged. Anyway, uh, I remember going back to visit after I'd moved away from there to Connecticut. And looking at the house, something made me angry. Other people were living there now. And they, you know, painted it or changed some shrubs in the front yard. or I don't know what it was. But I felt betrayed by the place. It was like uh, it was like seeing an ex-girlfriend with her new boyfriend, you know, or uh, it was that kind of like, well, how, how can you go on? How can you possibly go on without me? 
strange feeling. I was 15, 16 years old, maybe. And, um, and that, that got me thinking about it. And, and I feel that kind of thing again now, coming back to Barcelona. Barcelona was perfectly happy without me here. Hard as that is to believe, this town, even this neighborhood, just kept rolling right along and didn't even notice my absence. So there you go, a little humility. Uh, what have I noticed being back in Barcelona? Well, I've noticed uh, something that's sort of the opposite of a little rant I did a while ago about Los Angeles. I remember I was talking about how in Los Angeles, being in Los Angeles is like being on an airplane because there's structural violence built into the place. You end up being pissed off at other people when it's not really the other people's fault. It's the design of the space you're in. So when you're on an airplane, everybody's an asshole. The baby crying is a little bastard. The guy in front of you leans his seat back into your face is a fucking asshole. The person next to you has got his elbow on your armrest. God damn you. Get your elbow off my armrest. And the guy who farts two rows up and gasses out the whole fucking section. Everybody is a fucking problem when you're on an airplane plane, at least in coach. I don't know about business class or first class. I guess things are a little less um, oppressive up there. But in coach, everybody's an asshole. And it takes some real mental discipline to remember that it's not that everybody's an asshole. It's that the guys who design airplanes are assholes. Or maybe it's that the economic realities of air flight, you know, requires certain... Uh, certain compromises that none of us really willingly wants to make. But in any case, the violence is built into the design of the space you're in. And uh, Los Angeles is the same. Everybody's driving. Everybody's in a hurry. Uh, it's very hard to make left turns. The whole city is full of frustrated people waiting to try to make a left turn, but the traffic keeps coming the other way. There's never time to make a left turn, so you have to wait until it's a red light, and then you go through the red light, and then that pisses off the people who are waiting to make a left turn in the other way, and the whole thing's a fucking mess because of the design, and so we end up angry at each other because we're all in this fucked up space and you see the same thing in research with rats for example i know i've talked about uh, rat park before which is this amazing amazing bomb that went off in the research community i think in the 1970s uh, Bruce Alexander was a, sci a scientist in Canada who was looking at all this research showing how rats would um, keep hitting the, the lever to get the little cocaine water uh, rather than eating, rather than having sex, rather than, than doing anything. They would just keep hitting this cocaine water until they died of starvation. And he thought, that doesn't make any sense, biologically speaking, right? I mean, even if they're getting high on the cocaine, it's, you know, you got to eat at some point. Eventually, the hunger pangs would get stronger than the, than the desire for more cocaine. So he looked at their environment and he thought, well, maybe they're just desperate for cocaine because 
They're they're bored out of their fucking minds. They're in these shitty little cages all alone. Rats are social animals. So he built a big cage with lots of rats, different sexes, baby rats, adult rats, balls that they could push around, tunnels they could climb through, all sorts of interesting stuff to do, seesaws and swings and what have you. And what happened? The rats hit the cocaine thing once, tried it, decided they didn't like it anymore, and they left it alone. So what's that tell you about the addictive qualities of cocaine? It tells you it's bullshit. It tells you that cocaine is not the problem. The environment is the problem. Give people other interesting options and they won't hit the cocaine lever over and over and over again. I saw a headline the other day. Uh, Johan Harari, I think his last name is, just wrote a book, The First and Last Days of the War Against Drugs, I think, or maybe it's out in paperback now. I think it came out a couple of years ago. Anyway, the headline was... Something about the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is community, I think he said. Um, And I think, you know, you can take that right back to Bruce Alexander and Rat Park and urban design. Um, So what I've noticed in Barcelona is that the feeling of being in this city is the opposite of the feeling of being in Los Angeles. At least it is for me, and I would wager that it would be for just about anybody uh, first of all, people are, everybody's outside, everybody's sitting outside. So you walk down the street, there's a pedestrian street, a block from where I'm sitting right now in our neighborhood called Bly. You walk down Bly and it's just, um, terrace after terrace after terrace, people sitting in chairs, you know, around tables, eating tapas, having a drink, chatting, having a smoke, dogs hanging around, kids playing ball, kicking the ball against the wall. Everybody's outside. So you walk down that street and you feel like you're walking through a series of people's living rooms. And so what what does that trigger? What feelings does that trigger? It it triggers a sense of community. Even if you don't know those people, you're walking through their living space. You're walking, you, you overhear their conversations, you're walking right next to them, you're, their children are running around in front of you, you're in where they live, you're part of their lives. Even if only in a very crude physical sense for a few moments while you're walking down that street. So that consequently triggers a sense of community, as I said, it, 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 a sense of gratitude. Thank you for trusting me. Thank you for letting me into your life. You feel like a guest. And it explodes the sense of isolation that I think Americans are plagued by behind our walls, inside our houses. Not only Americans, I'm sure Northern Europeans feel the same thing. This is a very Mediterranean quality of living your life in the street. But that's why people are so fucking happy here, because you want to have a drink with a friend. You don't go to his house. He doesn't come to your house. You meet down in the street. You sit there. You have a drink and you watch people go by and you laugh and you talk to the people next to you at the table next to you. And maybe you see a friend walk by and she or he sits down and joins you and things happen spontaneously. And you watch the sky change color and the breeze. And it's fucking beautiful. And you're happy. So. There is a structural bias toward community, toward contact, toward inclusion, toward happiness in Barcelona. 
in Los Angeles and most American cities, there's a structural bias away from these things because the city's designed around cars and driving. There's nowhere to walk. Now, talking about walking, I've got an app in my phone that counts how many steps I take in a day. So I have the 10,000 step goal uh, based on my age and weight or whatever. And uh, in Portland, Oregon, it was fucking depressing, I'll tell you, because every day I would say, okay, around sunset, let's go for a walk. And Cassie and I would go for a walk and smoke a joint in the park and whatever and, you know, do our walk. I didn't feel like it. And most of the time I was in the middle of working on something or she was, but it was sort of a discipline thing. Come on, let's go for a walk. And it's nice. Portland's beautiful. It's a great day. And we have this great park where we walked. Really nice. Okay. Since I've been back here a week, whatever it's been, 10 days, every day I've gone way over 10,000 steps. How many times have I thought, okay, I should go for a walk? Zero. Not one. Because walking is part of life here. I walk when I go see a friend. I walk when I go for lunch. I walk when I go try to find a piece for the shower that I need to fix. I walk when I go buy this thing down there. I walk when I go to the doctor. I walk, walk, walk all the time. It's just part of life here. So again, the structure of life is biased toward fitness. Another example, I sit down with a friend to have a beer. We have two, three beers maybe. Okay, how big is a beer here? It's about seven ounces. I have a beer in the States. It's 16 ounces. It's a pint. So I go out with a friend in the States. I have a few beers, but that's a few pints of beer. I have a few beers here, and it, it adds up to maybe one pint or a little more than one pint, 21 ounces. So again, I'm not consciously aware of a difference. I'm not thinking, oh, I'm only drinking half as much beer or, you know, I don't, I, I want more beer. I'm not thinking that. I'm just thinking, oh, should we have another beer? Yeah, let's have another beer. Okay, let's have a beer, whatever. So the, the bias, the unconscious bias of the serving size here is biased toward greater health. Whereas the, ser the serving size in the United States is biased toward worse health. And I'm not just talking about beer. I'm talking about the size of a pizza. I'm talking about the size of a burger. I'm talking about the whole notion that bigger is better. It's not. Better is better. And if it's better, it can be smaller and you get more pleasure from it. And you end up feeling better and in better health. So that's the lesson of the day. Trying to find ways to at least to think about these things, to look at your life and see what are the built in structural biases in your life and are they edging you toward greater happiness and contentment or are they pulling you away from those things? All right, that's it for the rant today. Uh, I want to get this this episode up as soon as possible. I still don't have internet in the house, so I'm going to have to go to a cafe to upload this, which will be great because I'll be sitting in the street watching pretty girls go by. Uh, so there you go. Inconvenient, but wonderful. This episode is uh, Charles Johnston, who I met in L.A., He's um, associated with the Crossroads um, Treatment Center in Tijuana, uh, but he's based in Los Angeles. Super interesting guy. I, I went for a hike with him and had so much fun chatting with him. I asked him to be on the podcast and tell his story, which is a story that ranges from a Mormon childhood to being an Eagle Scout uh, 
although his parents, you know, they were, uh, if I remember correctly, basically hippies who became Mormons in order to give the kids a structured childhood. Go figure. And um, and then uh, Charles moved to Los Angeles and things started to get weird for him. He got into drugs, ended up with a pretty serious uh, heroin addiction. And I'll let him tell you the story. But it's a uh, it's a uh, very interesting story, uh, very compelling. And he's uh, a sincere, strong, honest, beautiful guy. And I really appreciate him sharing the story. It may be very helpful for you. If not, it may be very helpful for someone you know. And even if it's not helpful, it's just a really interesting life this guy's been living. So I uh, hope you enjoy this this podcast. And uh, thanks to all of you, as always, for buying shit through Amazon.com. I'm going to, once I get internet up, you know, up and running here, I'll read some of the more amusing purchases that you've made. I really appreciate it. I see some marijuana growers are ordering their supplies through my website, which is wonderful. I see the blackout plastic and the lamps and the and the fertilizer and the, all, the, all the supplies that any good commercial marijuana operation uses. So that's really kind of you. And, and of course, it's a pretty uh, nice chunk of change that uh, supports the podcast since you're spending quite a bit at Amazon. Those of you who don't know how to do it, just go to my website, click on the Amazon link, and then uh, bookmark the page you land on at Amazon and use that as your Amazon page, the, your entry point. And 5 to 10% of whatever you spend at Amazon will go to support the podcast, which is super helpful and much appreciated. In addition to Amazon, of course, there's fundwhatyoulove.com, which is a, a way to support the podcast. And then I've also set up an account at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Some people are um, hesitant to, to give their credit card information to fund what you love because it's a small operation. Um, so if you feel more comfortable using Patreon, uh, that's also set up. Just go in there and search for Tangentially Speaking or Christopher Ryan and you'll find me and you can drop a couple bucks or whatever you want per month uh, to support the podcast. And I very much appreciate it. So that's it. Charles Johnston. Hope you dig it. I've got a whole bunch of really cool episodes coming up soon that I've been sitting on for months now. Um, time to liberate them and send them out into the world, which I will be doing weekly. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling your friends and thank you for being you. I'm going to play you out with a song called Watermelons by Simon Van Gent, who was the guest last time. Check out that episode if you missed it. He's a South African musician I hooked up with in Cape Town. Had a great time with him. Uh, beautiful guy. Anyway, this is uh, Watermelons from one of his records. I don't remember which, but just find Simon Van Gent. G-E-N-D, I think, is the spelling. Um, you'll, the links are all on my web page, so you'll find it there. And then later on, I'm going to um, uh, play another song by uh, our buddy Colin, who is in Victoria, B.C. And his this is from an upcoming record of his called uh, Sale Cassidy. I don't know what the name of the song is, but it's fucking great. He sent me an MP3 a while ago, and I don't think he told me the name of the song. Maybe he hasn't named it yet. So there you go. Uh, but it's Colin. Um, Man Made Lake is the name of one of his bands. And uh, Sale Cassidy is the name of his solo project. So I'll let you know when that's available for <clears throat> purchase or download. And that's it. 
take it easy. Viva España. Visca Barca. Okay. We're rolling. about what's to come and how it's gonna be when my work is done and all the joy I'm gonna find when obstacles are overcome no matter where or when or who I'm with I'm always waiting for a bigger fish and all my hopes are mixed up in this myth that the best is yet to come This is the time This is the place Let the juice run down your face It's time to bring the watermelons in All your wealth Don't leave it on the shelf Help yourself to all that the moment brings How long you gonna sit around and wait For bigger fish to bite upon your bait Some sweet magical idea to wake you up to really being Happiness is just over the hill But over that one there's another still And even when you've reached the peak I bet that you will still find more to seek This is the time, this is the place Let the juice run down your face It's time to bring Watermelons in All your wealth Don't leave it on the shelf Help yourself To all that the moment brings The urge to run from what's inside of me Keeps me trapped inside the yet to be Like a stone I skip along the surface of the ocean that is me Slowly I am learning how to sink Beneath the layers of the thoughts I think To the world of what I feel where there's a chance to make the moment real This is the This is the place Let the juice run down your face It's time to bring the watermelons in All your wealth Don't leave it on the shelf Help yourself To all that the moment
right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting here in the, uh, in the, what do we call this? This is an interior <laughs> courtyard. Yeah, the interior courtyard. In Venice, California. We're sort of at the corner of Lincoln and Venice Boulevard, for those of you who know the town. Uh, and so you'll hear buses going by in the background. But it's nice. I, I like the scene here. You look up and you see these tall palm trees yeah, that are very, very emblematic. Yeah. Of, a little overcast. Of LA. Yeah, it's kind of an overcast day. It's supposed to rain like shit tomorrow. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so y you were just saying you're looking for a place to live. I'm. We're moving out of here. So, so we're both sort of... Uh, Transition. Yeah. Lots of transition. Period. Yeah. <laughs> how long? That's you, life. How long were you living in the place you're leaving? Uh, about a year. Oh, so it's a yeah. major. It's a major thing for you. We've been here like two weeks. Two so, weeks. Okay. You know, yeah. Who gives a but shit? Luckily, luckily, I I've been in that transition phase for many years, so I don't accumulate. I do my best not to accumulate. Yeah. So. Yeah. I often say Cassie and I, for the last four years, have been sort of like slow nomads <laughs> slow mads I slow think. mads yeah I like we're slowmatic which the problem with that is that you're not moving fast enough to really keep it light but you're not staying anywhere long enough to be comfortable accumulating yeah. shit so yeah. we we just keep like accumulating because we're there for four months or six months or something and then it's time to move and then like okay we're giving everything you away, give it away yeah so our friends have benefited to some extent, you know, <laughs> which which is a nice way to go through yeah, life, I guess. That's good, yeah. Waste a lot of money, but <laughs> maybe you leave some happy friends behind. So um, anyway, so I met you, what, two, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, probably like three weeks or something. Yeah. Something like we, that. We took a hike. Went on a little hike. That was nice. And yeah. uh, what's that called? Red Rocks or something? Yeah, Red Rocks in Topanga. Topanga, yeah. That was my first time being there, actually. I was I was impressed. Most of the hikes I've been on in L.A., they're kind of just yeah. normal. That one actually has some some landscape that's nice to look at. The yeah. rocks are pretty cool. Yeah, it's great. Have you been on the other side, Topanga State Park? Um, no. It's good. Ride your motorcycle up there sometime. Really? I'll, I'll tell you afterwards. Yeah. yeah it's it's beautiful, beautiful hike. Open, you know, yeah. see out over the valleys okay. and down to the ocean at some point. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Anyway, so you and I were talking about your your very interesting life path. <laughs> and, uh, and I asked you if you'd be willing to share it with the audience. So here we are. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, I appreciate I mean, it. I, I share it with everyone in, per in person, so might yeah. as well. Whether they want to hear it or not. <laughs> Whether right? they want to hear it or not. <laughs> Poor guy sitting next to you on the airplane. Hey, do you know I used to be a Mormon? It, you know, it's fun because my friends, when they're listening to it, they're like, oh, there he goes again. You know? <laughs> well, I'm sure my friends say that about me, too. It's fun with yeah. the Uber drivers, too, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a fun one. <laughs> yeah, I've had some really good Uber conversations here in L.A. Some, yeah. some interesting, smart people. Yeah. Seem to be driving Ubers. Yeah. Well, I've, yeah, I made a point to really talk to them now, mm. you know, to really engage with them and, and have a meaningful conversation um, as opposed to the normal just get in and go. Yeah. Because, you know? yeah, it's, uh, you find out a lot of interesting stuff. You know, people are from all over. Might as well just talk. Yeah. 
It's tough when you're only going six blocks away. But. <laughs> you, can get, you can get some good stuff in there, though. <laughs> hey, listen, uh, it's going to be a short ride, so let me just get right to it. you got to play your list. You, know? you have a little list here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's like doing a TED Talk. Yeah. All right, I got seven minutes to cover the high points. Uh, an Uber talk. Yeah, yeah. I, can see, I see a TV show there. There's a TV yeah, show. Yeah, for sure. Um, so anyway, you, you, uh, where do we start? You, you were born in North Carolina. North Carolina. And, but your family. Oh, wait a minute! I'm remembering now. It's coming back. <laughs> like you're, you were. They were Mormons when you were a kid, but they yeah. started out as hippies, right? Yeah, yeah. My mom, my mom right. went to Woodstock, and my right. my father was he was kind of chemist and did the whole LSD thing, you know. And then they had two kids. They actually got married by a Universal Life Church minister. I didn't find out this story of how they got married until later on. But it was very interesting because there was drugs involved and mm. and uh, legal stuff, and there was suggestion from different people to get married to help with legal things. And so, you know, while while they were stoned, one of their friends got them married in the Universal Life Church. So, did your dad get busted? Uh, yeah, yeah. And so they get married so your mom could visit him in jail. Well, no, so he wouldn't go to jail. Oh, okay. Yeah, because back then in the in an the upstanding 60s, married yeah, man. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I found this out when I was. 29 years old about a year ago my oh. brother said something i was like what are you oh, kidding it's kind of a very weird situation and your brother's older than you yeah i have, I have three brothers two older one younger uh-huh. and so yeah they uh they they were you know they're hippies living in atlanta little five points had a little like vegetarian mushroom restaurant and, uh, and your dad was cooking up acid yeah yeah <laughs> among other things <laughs> Wow. And then uh, they had two kids, they had two boys, and I guess, you know, as my mom tells me, kind of after having the two kids, she needed some stability. They wanted mm. to kind of settle in and, and get something figured out, and she figured, well, I might as well do something. I'm going to be in this for a little while. So <laughs> they were debating while. between Hare Krishna and being Mormons because right. they had friends in each each place and so they didn't consider any sort of more conventional no they yeah no they grew I mean my father grew up like you know he had Episcopalian parents and my mother had Catholic parents but they didn't really neither of them practiced right so they were definitely kind of just secular somewhat spiritual obviously spiritual because of the the nature of what they did when they were in their early 20s and stuff and yeah and I mean not to not to trivialize it, but making acid is kind of a spiritual thing. I well, mean, it yeah. doesn't have to be, but yeah. probably yeah. for most people it would be. Do it, yeah, and and doing it, I mean, you know, as we all know, once you do something like that, it it expands your awareness, and suddenly you're like, oh shit, this is there's a lot more here than I've been kind of yeah. looking at. So, yeah, I think that that kind of sparked a little thing, but them going Mormon, I mean, I really just, my mom said it was just basic to have family structure. That's what drew, drew her to the church, was to have like a family, solid family structure. Because then they ended up having two yeah. more boys and... It's a lot of fucking testosterone <laughs> running around that house. Your yeah, poor mother. She was out. She was she, she was a nurse and she just was, she was gone. She was like, all right, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do really? my thing. I'm not going to even mess with you guys. You guys uh, just figure it out. Yeah, we just figured it out, you know. Ray's kind of just did her own thing. Yeah. Very, very uh, hands-off approach to parenting. Right. At least in me and my younger brother's case. Yeah. Yeah. Your other, your two older brothers are significantly older than you, or yeah, they're ten years. It's it's so like two, ten year two, gaps. Yeah, right, yeah. 
yeah, two sets that are 10 years apart. Yeah, my wife's situation is like that, except it's three and then 10 years and then her. Uh, so she's that, sort of on that's her a, own. Yeah, that's a, that's a unique one because you get you're the baby and everyone kind of... Everyone's your parent. <laughs> yeah. 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 But also she, f I mean, not to get into her thing too much, but she always felt um, like she didn't fit in, you know, like they've all got, there's this family and they've known each other a long time mm -hmm. and then I showed up. Uh, yeah. yeah. Almost like being adopted or something, yeah. you know. That's interesting. And it's good that uh, you have another brother in the same age group that you guys sort of went through it together. Yeah, yeah. Know. My older brother, he was always tagging along, or I was tagging along. Mm. You know, so that was that was pretty fun. Yeah. So, and you grew up in in Atlanta. Yeah. Well, no, I grew up in North Carolina. Oh, so North Carolina. Yeah, they were in Atlanta. They kind of right. bounced around doing different businesses. My dad was an entrepreneur, so he kind of just jumped all around, and then. Uh, I grew he up gave up the acid after getting busted. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They gave up. They gave up drugs altogether. When yeah. they did the Mormon thing, it was like they became very stringent on that. There was no coffee in the house. Um. There was no. We didn't watch TV on Sunday. They were kind of letter letter to the law. Although they weren't strict in the sense, you know, they kind of let us do our own thing. But there were things that my dad was like fundamentally opposed to, and he tried to be really you know, stringent when it came to following the rules of the church. And how did he, like in his own head, did you ever talk to him about how he integrated, like the way he was and then suddenly switching and... You know, it, I've never like had a really in-depth conversation with him about it. I mean, I've just kind of observed him. And I think what he liked about the Mormon church is that there was a lot of, there's a lot of specificity to the dogma. You know, they have a lot of like, this is where you go to heaven, this is what heaven's like, this is where God lives. There's all kinds of like very precise things and the whole the whole modern day prophet, modern day revelation thing is very I think was attractive. And now that I look back on it, I'm like, I think Joseph Smith probably took mushrooms in the woods and saw God. So maybe that was some connection there. Um, wow, I never thought I mean I, I, I it certainly occurred to me that Joseph Smith was tripping on something, yeah. but it never occurred to me that that could be at, make it attractive to hippies. Oh uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean they're all tripping. Yeah. You know, you think about Jesus. I mean, what a hippie that totally. guy was. Yeah, you Moses, know? the burning bush. Yeah, that was probably acacia, DMT, yeah. right? Right, smoking DMT. Yeah, and Buddha. I yeah. mean, you know, how long are you gonna sit under that tree, <laughs> Buddha? Like, hey, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah there's a lot of uh, otherworldly trippiness about all these religions. Yeah. And I'm sure if, if I knew something, I don't know anything about Islam, really, but I'm sure there are all sorts of... Because well, it's all about transcendence. Yeah, Muhammad went in a cave. I mean, who knows if he used psychedelic substances, but altered states of consciousness, for sure. You yeah. go in a cave by yourself for however long, right. by yourself. That's and the whole point. Yeah, you don't sleep or whatever. You're going to start hallucinating. You're not checking your emails. <laughs> yeah. There's no coverage in this cave, damn yeah. it. It's like an isolation tank, old school isolation yeah. tank. Yeah, I want to get a cave with Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> It's the modern conundrum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, I forget. Did you, like, go to college? Or what, mm -hmm. what was your... What was yeah, your, I was... So, I, I so grew were up, you a believing Mormon then? Because yeah, you're growing up I, in this... Well, it's interesting because I, I lived in a really small town. I mean, my town was really small. I graduated with 14 people. Wow. So, it was like... I knew everyone in town, and I was the only Mormon. My family was the only Mormon family, and so I really kind of stuck to that. That was like my identity. Right. That was like a real identifying thing for me to be the Mormon kid. Was that weird? 
Did the other people think you guys were freaky or? I mean, yeah, they didn't think we were freaky, but they're definitely like, I was the guy, you know, I didn't play sports on Sunday and I couldn't hang out at my friend's house on Sunday and there's all kinds of little rules that were strange, but I integrated pretty well. I wasn't like a weird kid. Mm. You know, I wasn't like trying to tell people about my religion or anything like that. Right. It was kind of separate. Like I would go to church, I'd go to Boy Scouts, and then I, I lived in my town where it was just normal, kind of whatever. So there was a Mormon church, so there were other Mormons but it was, around. Yeah, but it was like 45 minutes away. We had to drive mm. off the mountain and stuff. So there's mm. a complete, it was like two separate lives. Right. You know, so yeah, I grew up in a really small town and then I, uh, I wanted to leave pretty quickly. You know, I went to Japan when I was in high school, spent a year there. Ah, how'd that go? That was, uh, that was, it was a fun experience. It was interesting. Was it that was AFS or something? It was Rotary. Ah, Rotary yeah, Club. Yeah, Rotary right. Club. They sponsored me. Huh. And, um, you know, I'd always wanted to get out. I couldn't, I couldn't be there. It was a beautiful place, really beautiful place. But it just, there was no opportunity for me. I was like, wanted to explore and learn. I, I was always kind of an experiential person. Um, I just wouldn't do drugs. And so I tried to experience life as many ways as I could without doing any of those drugs. So I didn't, you know, I went to Japan, I came back, I went to college for a little bit. What about sex in high school? None. Masturbation, Mormons. Mormons aren't supposed to do that either. But that's, you know, that's that's a really hard one to, <laughs> to avoid. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. That's that's probably the, the number one issue that most young men have in that church. Yeah, is, or in uh, any church. In any church, yeah. you know, and it, it brings a lot of shame and guilt. Right. That was a, that was a really, it was kind of traumatic. Well, that's what it's for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't realize it at the time, but the whole point of that is to set a hook in yeah. your cheek, you yeah, know, exactly. so that they can they're, drag you around. They're, they're getting you, yeah, all yeah, the time. Yeah. So. But in Mormonism, is is it seen as like you're going to go to hell, like with Catholics? No, it's, it's like you're messing up, you're doing something wrong, you're not supposed to do that. They don't take it super serious with masturbation, but they do limit you on what you're you're allowed to do you know like they have this whole priesthood thing for young men where you you know you do like the sacrament like the priest would in the catholic church you're the one that's giving people the mm. bread and the water right and you have this responsibility and you're supposed to be clean and uphold right. that and it yeah it's, it's amazing isn't it because i mean in addition to the shame and the guilt what they're doing is train they're sort of ingraining hypocrisy mm -hmm. from the very beginning you become accustomed to pretending to be something that you know you're not. Yeah, because unless you're perfect, unless you're just right on, but yeah. but the majority, the high majority of people well, really struggle with that. Yeah. And I met a lot of guys, I, you know, I went and served a mission. I did the whole two-year thing too. And it was, a lot of guys had a really tough time with that. Mm. You know, it brought a lot of pain. Right. There's a lot of sadness revolving around them not being worthy. Right. And uh yeah, and it so it hurts it hurts most those who are most sincere. Yeah. It does. And Fuck. and I and I was I was really sincere. I mean, I really cared, but I'd never the thing with the Mormon church that's interesting is they uh the whole belief structure is based around this personal revelation. You know, they tell people they're like you join the church because you read the Book of Mormon and you receive an answer from the Holy Ghost. You mm. receive some kind of experience from the Holy Ghost. Most people would relate that experience to a warm, kind of comforting flooding of emotion or something like that, which most of us have had watching a certain movie or being with a loved one or being in a certain environment. But 
their idea is when you read the Book of Mormon and you're reading these passages that if you feel that feeling then it, it verifies the truthfulness mm. of what you're reading. And that was always confusing to me because those feelings that I would have reading this book, which you know, it's not a bad book, it's got a lot of good stuff in it, like the Bible, but you know, I'm having that feeling in other places too. So I'm right. wondering to myself, well, what's, what's real here? What's true? You know, there's, so I just kind of stuck with it because I didn't really have anything else. And, uh, you know, I did the two-year mission thing, and that was, that was really interesting. I mean, because you're out there on your own, knocking on doors every day, figuring it out, working hard, and you talk about sincerity. Waking up at 6.30 in the morning, studying your scriptures, going out at 10 all day until 9 at night. And you're with another guy, You're right? with another guy. You switch off periodically every couple months, uh-huh. and you go to a different place every couple months. And... Uh, you know, I worked, I worked really hard, um, but I wasn't the perfect dude. It was just, there was just too much structure and like, you know, stringent guidelines of just ridiculousness. And I was like, this is stupid. Like some of this stuff is so stupid. Really? Yeah. But for me, my goal was just to help people. Right. That's why I was there. Right. And uh, to help people by showing them the light of Mormonism. Well, yeah, to help people that are in pain, that you know, that are lost, that are looking for something. And at the time, I thought the church, the Mormon church, was going to be the solution for everyone. So when you're not going to, I mean, I've had people knock on my door Seventh Day Adventists and Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, yeah. Um, And and I I. I'm always tempted to, because they're always these young, fresh-faced <laughs> yeah. kids, you know? Yeah. And I'm always tempted to, like, invite them in and, you know, pull them over to the dark yeah, side. Did, yeah. did anyone ever try that with you? Um, yeah, of course. There's a lot of people that would try to, like, talk to you into doing stuff or, you know, ask you to have a drink or whatever, smoke some pot. or <laughs> Just to it, fuck with Yeah, all, all the time, you know, but... <laughs> You're you're in the zone. I mean, when you're out there, you what, you what a great <laughs> undercover. <laughs> Another movie I did. A DEA agent oh, yeah, poses as a Mormon, <laughs> right? And I'm like, hey kid, come in, take some of these drugs. Like you're busted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. But you're you know you're you're this fresh faced, naive, nineteen, twenty year old, right? And you're uh, you've been you're so indoctrinated every day with yeah. this stuff that you're usually most of them are pretty pretty solid. You ever have a woman? try to seduce you yeah there really? are times yeah oh, sh- oh now but, now we've got a porn movie yeah, idea. Exactly. there are porn movies that have that already <laughs> oh, really? that's been done yeah <laughs> that's been done probably a few times um, the mormon and the milf yeah well like there's a movie called orgasmo that the south park guys did oh really which that's that kind of the whole plot Oh, the, the Mormon guy has to earn money to get married in the temple to his wife, and so he ends up doing porn. Except he has a he has a stunt double that mm. you know is his stunt cock that mm. does the whole sex scene. <laughs> oh man, it's pretty funny. Have you seen yeah. the Book of Mormon? Speaking I have. Of those guys, I have. Yeah. Is it uh, how uh, that must be a really it, strange experience for you? Yeah, it it's a. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. There's parts of it that are funny. It's a little, you know, it's a little too campy and vulgar for me. I'm not a huge musical fan, and yeah. the, you know, the South Park guys, they they can take things pretty far. <laughs> you know, understatement <laughs> of yeah, the century. Take, so once yeah. it goes to a certain point, I just get I get kind of tired of it. Like Cartman yeah. rants. Yeah. After a little while, I just kind of get tired of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of really funny things that they do bring up. Some really good topics those guys bring up. They're brilliant. Yeah, they are. They're smart as hell. I, I, I share with you the, I, I 
I just don't get musicals. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen a musical that didn't strike me as just dumb as hell. <laughs> you know, in fact, someone, I don't know if it was Dan Savage or, or another gay friend of mine, at some point was complimenting me because mm. I was I was whining about like being a straight man and you know how like <laughs> uh, nobody wants to hear what I would yeah, say yeah. and and whoever it was said Chris you're gay in everything except <laughs> except your sexual orientation and your uh, incapacity to appreciate musicals <laughs> I was like yeah <laughs> I'll take that that's pretty much it yeah you know and my absolute lack of fashion sense yeah I'd probably yeah, uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. There have been some musicals that I've seen that I liked because of the, the kind of social message. They're, like Rent, Rent's not a bad musical. Mm. To watch, I watched the film. I didn't go see the musical. I don't know if I could sit. I'm not a big like Broadway. I'm not a big stage fan. I pr I prefer film a lot more. Yeah, that's kind of my the medium that I like. Yeah, with musicals, the pro I mean, I I've there are musicals where I like the music. Mm -hmm. You know, and where and I've seen some Broadway musicals, and, and the acting's amazing, and the sort of experience and everything. But what I don't get is, like, how am I supposed to believe this? <laughs> so there's dialogue happening, yeah. and I'm getting into these characters and sort of imagining them they, as real they people. Break out. And they break out. They break out into song, <laughs> and it's like that doesn't happen. That that uh, now you fucked up. My I can't like hold on you, to this. You're anymore. so linear, Chris. You're just I guess so. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But it's like, you know, are you real people or are you yeah. singers? I yeah. mean, what are you here? You yeah. know, not that singers aren't real people, of course, but one, one musical I enjoyed was um, about uh, Salif Keita, I think his name is, or uh, Salif Keita, who's an um, African musician who's also a very political guy and mm. got arrested and, you know, the, I think he was someone in his family was killed by the government and there's so he was so the way the musical was structured though was like you know him his political struggle he's like a Mart it was like Martin Luther King and James Brown have a love child uh, it was yeah. like that kind okay. of you know character right so he'd be doing his speeches and and all this political uh, agitating and then he'd play a gig mm. So it's like, okay, I buy this because yeah. the guy, he's just doing a gig and then yeah. he's off stage and he's talking again. Yeah. You know? it's, it's that breaking of some sort of rule that I can't follow. Yeah. Anyway, no. who gives a shit? I, I get you there. Yeah. I get you. So I, but I pulled you off uh, Japan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, what was that like? Cause, so you're a young, like 17-year-old? Young, insecure, 16, 17-year-old, you know... Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't the most outgoing. There was a lot of inner turmoil. I had a lot of rage going on, you mm. know, a lot of angst, teenage angst. Right. But especially because I was this, the Mormon thing, I think, added a lot to that. So I didn't, there was a lot of things because I wasn't part of, like, normal culture growing up. Like, I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't watch right. R-rated movies when I was a kid. I didn't date girls. Right. I mean, those kind of things left, you know, kind of a left it very challenging for me to feel comfortable in socially. But what did your friends, like you're in high school before you went to Japan and you're mm -hmm. hanging out with your buddies and you're like, oh, you know, they're like, oh, let's play basketball Sunday. And you're like, man, you know, remember <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. the Mormon guy. I mean, and then did your friends say to you like, dude, like, yeah, they didn't, you know, they didn't really bring it up. I mean, yeah, it was, it was a, it was an issue, but it wasn't like, they didn't harp on it. Right. You know? I mean, yeah, there was yeah. A, there was never anyone that kind of they never gave me shit per se about it. Um, 
it, it became kind of a joke, you know. I was a storm and Mormon, as they referred to me, because <laughs> I was also, you know, like I was, I was this really good. You know, I was an Eagle Scout. I was a good kid. I was I had a lot of integrity, but then I was like a, you know kind of did stupid shit like I'd go break into the school and mess things up in the school or I'd be outside shooting out light bulbs and starting fires in places mm. and, and just kind of like I like vandalism was something I really enjoyed as a teenager <laughs> so yeah running from cops and that kind of stuff so there's yeah. these two there's a very you know interesting dichotomy that I that I had going on with myself right where it's like I'm a good kid but then also I'm not such a good kid when it comes yeah. to this other stuff. There were just certain lines I wouldn't cross, mm. you know, then. So Japan was, it was a, at times a very isolating experience. And, uh, you know, I was kind of on my own, living with Japanese people, Japanese families. Just Where were you? Doing my thing. I was in a little town called Komoro near Nagano. So like- It's on the main island? Yeah, main island, like two hours east uh, or west of Tokyo, mm. two hours west of Tokyo. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a really cool experience for me to be on my own and, and start to really own up and, and explore what it is to just do your own thing. Cause I, I had free range. No one give, gave a shit what I did. Really? You know, the, like the Japanese people are so non, uh, confrontational right. that no matter what I did, I could do whatever I want. I skipped school for weeks. I didn't go to school for weeks. Hey, so you were going to a Japanese school? <laughs> yeah, Japanese school. school <laughs> <laughs> but what was that? So you, don't, but you didn't speak Japanese, I didn't obviously. speak Japanese. And I didn't learn it very well either because I was kind of an introvert at the right, time. Right. So I just was kind of going to school but not getting anything out of it. You know, I'd play sports. I like playing sports because I yeah. dominated. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a foot and a half taller than everybody I else. I dominated. <laughs> That's hilarious. So you're like, you're like, we were playing basketball. Yeah, or yeah, 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 just killing them. <laughs> <laughs> storm and warming. Yeah, storm and warming. That's but uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. I did some traveling there on my own. You know, yeah. I did the hostel thing, and that was cool. At sixteen, kind of getting on trains and traveling around the country, and yeah, exploring it on my own and sneaking into temples and doing all kinds of stuff. And um, did the family speak English? Yeah, usually the families. I, I stayed with like four different families. Oh, okay. So some of them spoke English, some didn't as well. Right. And so, you know, it was a lot of video game playing too. Right. <laughs> you know, right. that's a lot of my teenage years. A lot of video game playing on my own. Did you hook up with any Japanese girls? I didn't. I didn't. I didn't kiss a girl until I was 18 years old. Right. You know, I didn't have sex until I was 23. Right. So, that was a that was a really weird thing for me too. Not not being able not feeling comfortable around girls and that kind of relationship yeah because in the mormon church with the whole thing going on with pornography and masturbation i think i developed this complex about you know sexual yeah. relationships and and females and since i had no sisters and my mom wasn't around ever uh, right. i just didn't know how to relate or adapt yeah you know that's not that's something that's come to me in my late 20s right so I how old are you now 30 30 yeah congratulations you made I it i know i made it to 30 <laughs> there's a there's an old japanese expression i love i heard it years ago at the by the age of 30 we become responsible for our face mm. I remember I heard that around my 30th birthday and I remember I thought about that a lot. And I think the what it means to me is that at 30 
you can't blame anyone else anymore. Yeah. You've had enough time to figure your shit out and yeah. correct whatever whatever mistakes people made when you were young or whatever, yeah. you know. Like, by 30, it's like, no, I'm not saying everybody should have healed, you know, every wound. That yeah. They, but, but you're sort of, you're driving the bus. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. In my, in my own situation, that's kind of how it's progressed, hmm. you know. Yeah. So being in Japan, I'm, I'm sort of trying to put myself in your shoes. I'm thinking, here's this guy who's in this little town and feeling like an outsider in his own town. Yeah. And now you're in Japan and you're an outsider <laughs> in a whole new dimension. Yeah. Right? Because they don't even know what it's like to be an American kid, uh, much less Mormon. They yeah. You know, they've never heard of it, probably. Yeah. probably. That must have been sort of a quantum experience for you. Yeah, it was... Uh, it really... I mean, it really caused me to to reflect and and look at things and you had a lot I mean, of balls doing that and you said you were insecure but oh yeah i don't uh, see an insecure kid getting on that plane well i wasn't i wasn't insecure about my capability to like explore the world i was insecure about my capability to explore relationships and people that's um, an interesting distinction yeah because i i was you know i'll go jump i would jump off a cliff i'd go in the woods i'd do whatever i wanted to do as far as if it was just me, mm. not an issue at all. Mm. But as far as engaging with others and having having kind of inner inner relationship communication, it's uh, that's where I suffered quite a bit. It's a funny thing because I think most people would say that they're it's the opposite, probably. Well, or, or what I was thinking was that the the flow of confidence into the self comes from relationships with other people, mm -hmm. but you're saying like you had the confidence within yourself and yet you weren't getting it wasn't being nourished by no. people who yeah. were who were saying hey you're great man you, you know all that affirmation yeah. that you get from girlfriends and yeah and stuff i think it's i think it's a you know it's a reflection of how my parents raised me mm. just super hands off you know right. i mean they weren't my mom wasn't the type of mom that was doing my laundry or cooking my food or like, uh, right. you know, I mean, she did up to a point, but then when I was like 13, she just was done. She stopped cooking. She pretty much kind of moved out because she was like, all right, you guys are on your own. Because we wanted to be on our own. She actually, she had a, she said, I remember she goes, all right, you guys, you're supposed to do the dishes if I cook because she comes home from work she would cook sometimes mm. and we just wouldn't do them me and my little brother and eventually she goes alright fuck it I'm not going to cook anymore you guys don't do dishes and that was kind of the the real separate that's when she was like alright I'm done right. she left she stopped going to church she kind of just went on her own and she left she the house mountain woman yeah Oh, really? Yeah. I thought you meant that figuratively. No, no. She's, she moved out she, of the yeah, house. Yeah, she's super independent, too, you know? And right. so she went and did what she wanted to do. She had horses and lived in the woods and Your mom chopped wood. And what? She's, yeah, she's gnarly. <laughs> you, see, you see her riding around on her horse with a big rifle and stuff and living in her barn. And she's a, she's a super cool-ass lady, you know? What? That's, that's, so what, where was your dad in all this? My dad was a... He was this really interesting, uh, you know, he's like an intellectual guy, but he he kind of holed up, you know, mm. and he, he kind of isolated and just kind of worked on his little projects. But he wasn't, uh, um, he was a dreamer, you know, he had big dreams, big aspirations, and one could maybe say a little delusional with some of those things 
um, no no negativity there but that's just how he is and so it's kind of interesting because my mom was very rational and pragmatic and my dad was this dreamer that you know didn't really get a whole lot done per se mm. if someone else was looking from the outside mm-hmm. so I, but he instilled that in me and I think I'm so grateful for that because it it blessed me a lot with you know to really look outside of what's going on around me and say okay there, there's possibilities that are far far beyond my imagination what where was the money coming from my mom primarily working and then my dad did real estate mm. so he occasionally he'd sell a piece of property and and have money but that was always it's always an interesting right. thing going on right. <laughs> like with most people and your mom what kind of nursing was she doing so she's an rn and she did everything she did hospice she was an er nurse or uh, geriatrics like that's hard work yeah she's she's a worker she's she's a tough tough lady so I'm trying to get my head around you guys being 13 your two older brothers are in they their were, 20s yeah they were they're, gone they're out yeah and so she's got these two kids you're 13 your brother was 10 10 so yeah. he's a couple years younger and you guys are not cooperating and she's tired she already raised two kids she kind of feels like she's done her time and yeah and she she was there she was there emotionally for us mm. but it what it's not like you know it's not like we came home to mom to like help us out or anything we right. never went to our parents for anything right you know so she moved into the barn yeah she basically went and lived in like a cabin in the woods and uh just did her own thing did she have lovers and stuff yeah so your parents had an open thing. Uh, it eventually, you know, she went and did her thing, and that caused some resentment for my dad, and because mm-hmm. he didn't, you know, it was hard for him to accept that. Right. But now it's fine. You know, now they're friends again. That's they're good cool. friends. But at the time, it was kind of difficult for him. It caused him a lot of pain. Which. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'd love to meet your mom someday. No, she's awesome. She sounds man. amazing. She's she's amazing. When you can send your mom psilocybin mushrooms and she's like 62 years old and <laughs> talked to her about psychedelics and you know she's uh she was an inspiration for me yeah and, and whenever i started getting into using entheogens using psychedelics um it was fun to be able to talk with her about that and she's she's always treated me with a lot of respect like an adult right she never tried to tell me what to do or kind of boss me around in most instances it was a very mutual respect and she's talked about that she's like i'm just your sister in reality mm. i mean yeah i'm your mom but like that's just because i birthed you but right. we're just two people on this same plane right now doing our thing that's you know your childhood sounds very hunter-gatherer to me it's that's the way hunter-gatherers raise kids mm, they see yeah. them as as independent beings yeah. with their own dignity their own path yeah they're not they don't see them as these incredibly vulnerable little angels you know like <laughs> yeah. they're, they're sitting next to the fire and yeah. they're like yeah well if, you know he'll learn yeah you know and and one of the things that anthropologists often talk about when they live with hunter-gatherers is like you know these kids are running around with machetes in their hands and, <laughs> and stuff yeah when i was a kid man we were running around with machetes my dad owned a marina and i remember it being like six seven eight years old pumping gas in boats and running around driving wave runners and boats around i mean there's not many kids that are seven, eight years old driving jet skis right. and pontoon boats and parking them and right. doing all kinds of stuff like that. So they 
They let us just do our thing. Yeah, and yeah. you know, the thing is, people say, well, what if something happens? What if something, <laughs> it, well, it, that's the key. It's like you start off saying, that kid's on his own path. Yeah. I'm here to help out, support when I can. Yeah. Um, but I'm on my path. I got my shit to do. Yep. And kids just sort of take care of themselves, or they don't. <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. there, there's some evolutionary ruthlessness to that yeah. approach. But you know what? I keep finding is is in these questions like we only look at half the the issue. You know, we say, well, what if the kid, what if the kid uh, falls and gets hurt and puts his eye out and whatever, but we don't say, what if a kid grows up never facing any danger? Yeah. What uh, about that? Yeah. You know, how much pain does that generate? Ton, it, tons. Now that I work in addiction, that's I see it mm. every single day. Every person I talk to that's dealing with addiction primarily. And I, and I went through addiction too, even with my, my thing, but m my addiction and me coming out of it is very different than a lot of people coming into addiction because many of them, when they come out of it, they have no skills. They right. don't know how to be an independent person because right. they've never been an independent person. Right. So it's a really hard challenge for them to, to actually succeed out of it. And that's one of the things, you know, one of the, the things I see that's wrong with the American paradigm is we treat these our children like they're like they're babies like they're incapable of accomplishing anything like you have to take care of everything they're doing and make decisions for them and it's just right. like it's crippling and it's I been it. it's been a very recent thing i mean when i was a kid kids you know still went out yeah and, and like yeah you, you talk about come that, home yeah. at the end of you know at the end of the day be home for dinner at six yeah until then get the fuck out of here <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and i yeah. think yeah with you know the way the way America's changed. I mean, I grew up in a really strange environment where it was a small town, and we did that still. You know, right. what I mean, I I go to school and I'd walk home at the end of the day at seven eight at night. Right. You know, I wouldn't. My parents wouldn't like pick me up after school or anything like that. You know, I'd just do my own thing. Right. And which was nice. You know, it was, we didn't have to worry about it. Would I do that in L.A.? I don't know. I don't know if I would let my you know how I would raise my kids in L.A. I'm not there yet. So. Yeah. But. I know some people that have let their kids do that, and many others. Did you hear don't. about the woman in New York who, who uh, her kid wanted to come home alone on the subway, and she, she gave the kid a piece of paper with the address, a couple, you know, some money, a uh, cell phone, you know, to yeah. call or whatever. The yeah. kid was like seven or eight or something like that. Yeah. And she put him on the subway in the village, and like they lived in the Upper West Side or something, and she went home. Yeah. And the kid came home and was so happy and you know like a, but then i guess the kid talked to someone on the subway and you know said you know the pe person was like what are you doing alone I'm like oh my mom said i could do it. and next thing you know the cops are showing up wow and, you know because yeah yeah that's you know in a in a city I don't, I don't know i don't know how i'd handle it yeah yeah, I don't either. I don't have kids, so I don't, you know, I'm not qualified to talk about. Yeah. And, and honestly, one of the reasons I don't have kids among many is that I was never, like on the one side, I'm not willing to carry the kid around like, a, you know, an egg in <laughs> yeah. a little basket. Yeah, that, your kangaroo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, but on the other side, I don't know that I'm emotionally or psychologically uh you know, ready to, to feel that kind of vulnerability, you know, because I know I put my parents through so much yeah. pain 
you know, not not that I. I mean, I was a crazy teenager like you. I busted shit and lit shit on fire, yeah, and yeah, you know, ran totally. from the cops. And yeah. that was fun. Yeah, it's fun. Because <laughs> I mean, I think it's kind of like being learning to hunt. You yeah. know, like a kid, you want to be out there facing <laughs> some danger and seeing how you react when shit goes wrong. Yeah. And, you know, it's that's part of learning. And so cops take the place of <laughs> leopards or something <laughs> in our world. But yeah, I got yeah. busted a bunch of times as a kid. Yeah, I did too. I oh did too. man, I, I remember one night a friend and I. I had this friend who was a maniac, and really. He, and he was, we were fourteen, fifteen. And this guy, like, he was half Apache Indian, half Italian, and, uh. and I look back now and I think his father was in the mafia because mm. his father had one glass eye, but <laughs> he also had a jet. Right, he flew jets, and he he's like had this airport in Pennsylvania, uh, in this little town in Pennsylvania. I'm sure he was smuggling yeah, drugs. Yeah, for sure. You know, and his mother was super hot. Oh <laughs> God, I remember her. Uh, that yeah, that keys in definitely, definitely mafia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like so, an Italian dude is married to an, Amer- an Apache woman who's yeah. smoking hot, and my buddy was a super good looking guy, and uh, he. And he was like banging teachers mm. in high school mm-hmm. at 15. Yeah. I mean, he was just, and he used to run a trap line in the morning before going to school. So he had traps along a stream and oh, okay. catching uh, muskrats and otters and okay. raccoons. And I went to a trapper's convention with him <laughs> once and sold his pelts, you know? <laughs> I mean, all this That's weird crazy. shit. Yeah, he had guns everywhere. He used to show up at school with like blood splattered on his pants from like clubbing the animals to death you know in the morning before coming to school i don't know anyway we were out one night and he had some horses we were riding horses around and he decided it would be fun to ride them through a golf course Mm. yeah we probably did about fifty thousand dollars worth of damage just just galloping (laughs) (laughs) the fuck were we thinking Anyway, uh, our wayward youth. Yeah. Uh, where, where were we? What were we talking about? So Japan was crazy. So you come back from Japan, finish high school. Finish high school. Uh, that last, that last. You know, I, I did really well in school up until going to Japan, and um, you know, I was like the the straight A student. Did Fucking Eagle e- Scout. Yeah, Eagle Scout. Even I, I got kicked out of school a lot in middle school. Mm. Uh, not a lot, but the most in my class for getting in fights and talking back to teachers and stuff and I still had the best grades. What'd you do with all that rage in Japan? Were you busting shit over there? I didn't really I mean I was just internalizing, you know, I didn't really deal with stuff. I didn't it wasn't it wasn't like I kind of explored the city and moved around and did stuff, but I felt very you know, I didn't know my way around. I yeah. didn't know how to speak the language. When right. you don't know how to speak the language <laughs> It's hard to get in trouble. Yeah, it's, I mean, I still, <laughs> I snuck into temples, mm-hmm. like I still did some stuff here and there, but like I said, a lot of times I just isolated because I was on my own, you know, and, uh, you know, read stuff and just kind of explored what it is to just be alone. Right. You know, um, but yeah, I got back, finished high school, went to college for a little bit thought I wanted to be a video game computer programmer that kind of shit and uh, ended up just kind of fucking off for that first year just not really doing anything and then then I was like oh man what do I do here I need to I need to change something because this is not this is not a good path that I'm on here where were you I was at University of Tennessee and 
So I did the whole mission thing. I was like, all right, well, let's, let's try this. So I, I put my thing in and I'm hoping, oh yeah, I'm gonna go somewhere cool. I'm gonna go like to a foreign country and I get Seattle, Washington. <laughs> and I was like, fuck. Yeah. I was just like, ah, oh, man, because they choose for you. Right. It's not like you get to choose where you go. You just send in your application and they say, God chose you to go here. And so, Thanks, God. Did, did so, God notice that I spent a year in Japan? I know. Yeah. So I was just like, I was like, "Fuck, this is this is going to be interesting." So I I did it, and I go there, and I I really embraced it. I took it as an opportunity to really learn a lot about the scriptures, like read the Bible a lot, read the Book of Mormon a lot, become an expert on that stuff. Because I ended up debating with people a lot about those things, mm. and that was where I really really learned how to work hard. Right. Because most of my most of my youth, things were pretty easy for me. I mean, right. I, was a, I was a fairly good athlete, got pretty good grades, um, you know, kind of had some advantages. Like you said, tall, white, <laughs> tall, white, good looking, you know. But I wasn't didn't, talking about you. I, I was talking you, about myself. That was you. That's yeah, right. That's right. Come but on. I didn't take it. You know, I didn't. I didn't know how to work hard. Yeah. And so I learned how to work hard in that time, which was really valuable for me is two years of just busting my ass. Right. And then came back and then found that I was kind of dissatisfied, you know. Um, I started to, I, I was selling, I started, I came back from the mission and I was doing door-to-door -door sales around the country. So I was in like Pittsburgh. Funny. That's I, was, that's <laughs> I know. What, what do you do? Of course. What's your job experience? <laughs> well, I can knock on doors and bother people. <laughs> so I was good at that, yeah. So I was in Pittsburgh and Iowa and Utah and Minneapolis, and I just kind of was bouncing around doing that. And Where working. were you selling? Dish Network and DirecTV. I was, uh, yeah. yeah, get you a really good deal on DirecTV. Uh, yeah, yeah. TV, which I didn't even like. That's a rough like, job, man. I did it's, that. It's tough. Testing doorbells is what we called it. You know, we're just testing doorbells. <laughs> and I mean, the, the hostility that you get. Yeah. And, and the problem is it's justified. I, yeah. I did it. I did it twice. I did it. It was my first job ever as a little kid selling mm. subscriptions to some newspaper. I was like yeah. seventh grade or something. Yeah. I did it for a summer. Hated it. And then... Uh, and then I tried it again. I was desperate for a job when I moved to San Francisco, and like <laughs> the only job available was Greenpeace, yeah, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, the Greenpeace guys. And I did that for, like, three hours. And, <laughs> and I was just like, I can't do this. These people hate me, and I hate me. Yeah. I, I understand. I mean, they come to the door. I remember a woman came to the door with, like, a baby on her hip, uh, you know, something in her hand that she was in the middle of trying to do. And she's looking at me like not wanting to be mean, but yeah. like, who the fuck are you? Yeah. And like, why are you bothering me? Get the fuck yeah. out of here. Yeah. So they, uh, the, the, like that situation, the fun part was when I was a Mormon and I did that, if that woman came like that, I'd say, hey, how can I help you? What mm. can I do? You know? Right. And I got a, you know, it was fun because I really did get to help people. I'd clean up their yard. I'd fix their house. I'd take as many opportunities as I could just to help people physically too. Right. You know, with like their their chores and stuff so right. that's good but yeah when i was door knocking doing the the satellite thing it got burned out on that yeah. super burned out and then i met some people and i started to you know i started to drink a little uh, for the first time now you know. still considered yourself a mormon i at did this point. yeah but so you're drinking started drinking a little a couple times i remember the first time i drank uh we were driving. I was in Minneapolis. And we we're driving downtown, and we buy this book, this bottle of Bacardi, 
and like I'd never tasted alcohol. So I'm just like, all right. And I just start chugging this shit. It's so, it's so gross, so vile, but I'm just like, whatever. And my buddy's like, you want a chaser? And I'm like, I don't care. This just, this tastes like shit anyway. I don't even care. I'm just going to drink it. So I drink a couple big swigfuls and I stumble out of the car when we get downtown. I like, can't even walk. And that was my first time ever being intoxicated really on anything. And, uh, it wasn't that enjoyable, you know. It really. <laughs> well, it's funny. It sounds great, and, and and the puking must have been wonderful too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Being couldn't couldn't go to sleep because I'm my head spinning. Yeah. And I eventually got arrested for disorderly conduct one time. Spent a night in jail, and so that was my first kind of experiences with alcohol. And then I was like, "Fuck! I gotta, I gotta get this. I gotta lock some stuff in." So we, me and my friend, just pick up and move to Arizona to kind of rekindle the Mormon thing. Mm. And we didn't know anyone. We just got in the car and drove down there. And we didn't know where we were going to stay. Uh, I remember just that going to church and trying to meet people that I could go back to their house and stay mm. later that day. Right. Um, but that's how I started, you know, started in Arizona and I tried the Mormon thing a little bit more. And my whole goal was to get married. Because they tell you after you come off the mission, get married. Right. Go get married. And... So I met Mormon girls and I was trying to do that and starting to get into that a little bit, but I didn't, they were very different than me. The girls? You know? Yeah. The way they thought and the way I thought was distinctly different. Even though we had the same belief structure, my, my, cogni you know, my cognitive level and the way I kind of saw the world and experienced the world was significantly different. And I think that's probably most people, but especially in, in the case of Mormons huge disconnect because they don't experience much at all most of them are just locked into their church thing and that's what they do and that's really the experience they have and that wasn't very in interesting to me mm. so I was st I started studying chemistry and going to school and I thought I wanted to be a doctor and um, after about a year there I started to drink a little bit, smoke a little pot, see what that was like. Because I, I was becoming uncomfortable with the whole Mormon thing. It was really losing its interest. I started to, like I read Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. Mm. And I was like, oh, like this guy, this character who I really looked up to lives for himself. Howard Rourke. Howard Rourke, yeah. yeah. He lives for himself. He's One of the, the only redheaded uh, <laughs> heroes of literature. Yeah. <laughs> But he's just yeah. completely autonomous and he does his thing. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's really amazing because my whole life I've wanted to do that, but I've been tied by this whole religious thing. Right. And so then I read Dune and that was that was an eye opener, huh. you know, to to see this messianic figure who basically took some psychedelics and suddenly starts leading people and again it's this hero figure who's doing his own thing and breaking the mold. Right. So I eventually was like, I remember going to the church and talking to people about it. And this one girl, she asked me, I said, yeah, I don't really, I'm not, it's not resonating with me anymore. And she's like, well, why are you still coming? And I was like, ah, oh, good point. So I went to the, the church leader and I was like, dude, I don't really believe any of this. It just, I don't. Did you talk to your parents or your brothers or anything? They were, I mean, not, not in the decision making. You know, it, 
Like I didn't have conversations with my family about decisions. I never needed to talk with them about decisions I was going to make. Mm. You know, I know a lot of people go to their parents for guidance. Right. Never been something I've done. Were your parents, are, are your older brothers still in the Mormon church? No. So they had already they, left. They had all kind of just phased out. So oh. I was the last. Oh, you were the, the last, last holdout. Hold. Yeah. Oh, okay. So. I'm kind of thick headed, <laughs> stubborn. <you know? laughs> so it wasn't, I was imagining, you know, that you're thinking, my God, my family might not talk to me anymore. Uh, yeah. No. So you were. I was the last. So that one. that's your your good boy vibe. Yeah. That's your like I'm a serious person. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I, I stick to it. Yeah. Right. Commitment. And eventually, I just was like, all right, I'm I'm not doing this anymore. And the thing was, is I realized I was tired of feeling guilty. Right. I was tired of feeling ashamed of being me and feeling sad and always kind of needing to appeal to someone to feel better. That just that got really yeah. I was over that and how old were you at this point uh, 23 okay so 23 you make a break make a break and then what happens I, uh, I did mushrooms for the first time took about a 16th of mushrooms after the after you left the yeah, church right, yeah right in that same time a friend of mine a uh, kid I lived with who was also Mormon in that same kind of thing except his family was all Mormon still right we took <coughs> mushrooms for the first time and it was an eye opener for sure you know, just being able to to run around like a kid and observe a blade of grass and see the beauty and the connectedness right. of all of it, that was really inspirational for me. So then I was like, okay, this is this what is ha- what amazing. happened to your buddy? He 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 did it for a while with me. He was exploring a lot, but he was so tied to his family that eventually he said, I can't do this anymore, and I'm, I got to go back to being with my family and doing what my because I don't want to make my family unhappy. Fuck. Yeah, that's painful. It was it was a really, Trump you know traumatizing thing for him. Because that's I mean that's like the guy who you know the or the the, the monkey who gets out of the cage. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then goes then back. Yeah. Because he doesn't want to leave exactly. his friends, exactly. and his friends won't leave the cage. Yeah. Fuck. That's yeah. rough, man. Yeah, so it was tough, and he was my best friend. He was my kind of my confidant and my my exploring partner. You know, he's still because in touch with him. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a really good dude. He's married, has a kid. He's oh, and he's, he's still doing it. He's doing it. Whether or not it's, you know, fully yeah. sincere, I don't know. But does that matter if he's happy with his family? I don't. That's not a, not a question a I have to ask question. myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I t- I do talk with him sometimes about it, but. And to what extent, you know, are are lo- I mean, in his case, it's sort of very clear what's happening, but that same relationship with reality is happening with a lot of people. It you is. Know? A lot of people when they're young, they sort of break out for a little while and see like, whoa, this is a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. And then like, yeah, but I got to get a job yeah, and I got a kid. I, and yeah, they, they rationalize. They're scared. They're scared yeah. of, of going it alone. And well, luckily, as, as they should be. It's, it's, it's risky. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I feel fortunate about my childhood because it prepared me Right. To go it alone. Right. And so I uh, I started really to, I, I ended up leaving Arizona, dropped, you know, leaving school there. We're at a scholarship to ASU. Everything was great. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to move to L.A. And I'd always wanted to be an actor, even though I'd never taken acting classes or anything. Mm-hmm. So I just moved to L.A. with that kind of idea because I liked L.A. Right. And I was also exploring psychedelics. I was ordering seeds online 
and dif taking different, you know, weird psychedelics that most people don't take. Datura and shit like I that? Did, I didn't take Datura, but I took like morning glory seeds and Hawaiian baby wood rose, right. like LSA and trying salvia and things of that nature and the, the more unconventional stuff, you know. I never got off on salvia. I tried it a few times. It's a... Uh, yeah, it's a challenging experience for most people. It's yeah. not it's not the most recreational thing. And I guess when you when you look at the the history of it, what the way we do it in America is not the way it's supposed to be done. You know, if you go to like Oaxaca, Mexico, they drink a tea, the elders pull these leaves off the tree, you drink this tea and it's like mm. this very therapeutic procedural experience. Right. When you smoke salvia, similar to smoking DMT, it's just very weird, super weird. See, I never got any weirdness. I never got anything. Really? Yeah, and I was doing this like the extract, extract yeah. super strong, whatever, yeah. and I just like, don't well, feel the well, damn thing. Lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> And I never tried morning glory seeds because from what I read about them... They're uncomfortable. It's, yeah, it's yeah. like a dark kind of <laughs> yeah. experience. Pretty uncomfortable, yeah. Yeah, I'm not... I, I don't even like horror movies, you know? <laughs> I, I don't watch horror movies I'm either. not looking for... <laughs> life's got enough nastiness. I don't, I'm not looking for any more. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so you moved to L.A., you're going to be an actor, you're, you're exploring all these uh, altered yeah. states. Yeah. So are you... Is, do you see, like... Is it like a pendulum situation where you... It is. It's swinging. Right. Yeah. It's swinging. Yeah. And when I moved to L.A., it's kind of right in the middle. Uh-huh. And then I get to L.A., and I, I have this roommate who introduces me to cocaine mm. and ecstasy. Oh, boy. And I start doing those. Right. And then I move out from his place, and then I start growing mushrooms, and I start doing acid, and I start doing more ecstasy and, and really exploring. And it's starting to swing more and more. And then... I quit the acting thing. I lasted like four months because I was like, this kind of sucks. I didn't even like it. And you're just going to auditions and getting yeah, rejected. Yeah, and, do and doing uh, extra work and stuff. Yeah. And, and it just wasn't interesting to me, that kind of monotony of repeating right. the same thing. And it, it's not as glamorous as what you see on TV. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> Hold on. The pacemen, you wanna race them. They wanna talk shit and walk by with beers. Cut up my hands and smear blood on pages. I got the rage and the darkness to boot. Hey, smooth face. Halo's not fitting very well Based on the marks that you left on me It's not fitting well Based on the sharks that you sent for me I'm under your spell under your spell I built a garden Invited insects Now I'm cleaning out the holes in the leaves You call me honey With wine in the bathtub Who's gonna clean up the blood in the sheets 
a smooth face Halo's not fitting very well Based on the marks that you left on me It's not fitting well Based on the sharks that you sent for me I'm under your spell Under your spell Suicide's not always the quickest of death It's a slow burn deep in your chest Someone is holding your hand again Coffee shop therapy, incense and dark Try drinking wine with a hole in your The pace, man. You wanna race them? They wanna talk shit and walk by with beers. Cut up my hands and smear blood on pages. I got the rage in the darkness to boot. Hey, smooth face. Halo's not fitting. Very well Based on the marks that you left on me It's not fitting well Based on the sharks that you sent for me I'm under your spell Under your spell Under your spell Under your spell All right, I'm back with Charles. Uh, just a slight interruption there for some... What the hell was that? Cassie was getting her earlobe stimulated with an yeah. electrical device. Vagal, vagal nerve stimulation. Her, that's right. Son, there was a there was a man stimulating my wife's <laughs> earlobes. I don't know if I should be upset about that. Her vagal yeah, nerve. Yeah, man, if she's happy, it's good. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, so where were we? We were, we, your pendulum was swinging. Swinging, yeah. So you were in L.A., you, someone had introduced you to Coke and ecstasy. Coke, and ecstasy, I was, started growing mushrooms, oh, experimenting right. with LSD, right. uh, 
you know, and it was all kind of street stuff, finding people on the street and getting things. And, and I, so I got back into school because the whole acting thing was a bust for me and right. I just didn't enjoy it. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the doctor thing again. Right. So I went to, I started going to West LA, which is a little community college. And that was the fifth, fifth school I'd been to, I think. Yeah, fifth school I'd been to. And so I start going there and I meet a kid in one of my anthropology classes. And, you know, I was, I was a lot older than the other students and most people noticed that because I was more, you know, I interacted a lot more with the teachers and kind of talked a little bit more. So he caught me out of class and we started talking and he goes, you know, I told him how I was interested in psychedelics. And he goes, well, have you ever tried opiates? And I was like, no, but I, I want to. And he was like, all right, well, come over to my house. We'll do them. I have some Norcos, like 10, 10 milligram Vicodins, basically, little hydrocodone. And so I went over to his house a couple of days later and I popped some Norcos and it was like this warm, comforting kind of rush that I felt. And I just kind of chilled there for a couple hours and was very, very at peace, you know, it was very serene. And I was like, oh, that's, that's nice. <laughs> and so I went back a few days later, I took a few more. I ended up taking too much, I puked, but I still was like, oh, this is nice. So he goes, he was like, well, if you like that, you should try heroin. And when I started doing drugs, I basically took the attitude of, I'm not going to listen to what anyone says about what I should or shouldn't do. I'm going to try whatever I feel like trying. And I knew about addiction, but because I'd been raised LDS or Mormon, addiction to me, I thought was just a willpower issue. Mm -hmm. I just thought people that are addicts are just weak. You know, that was my idea. So I you know, after doing, you know, that experience with him about a week later, uh, my roommate said, Hey, there's this dude trying to sell weed, like on the corner in our apartment complex. You want anything? And I was like, no, but I'm going to go ask him. So I run down and I go ask this dude and I go, Hey, you know how to get heroin? And he goes, Oh yeah. Matter of fact, I do. And he was actually, he was an, he was a heroin user for a number of years. And so that day we bought some heroin and I started smoking heroin off tinfoil. And, you know, it was, it was a really, at first, and I always tell people it's, it's very subtle because at first it's, it's very pleasurable, you know? It's like this total enveloping of happiness. You're just so at peace and happy. And I would use it maybe once or twice a week. It was kind of just a recreational thing. I maybe would go out to my friend's house or I'd go out to a party and I'd smoke heroin instead of drinking alcohol or doing anything else because I enjoyed that feeling and it made me more sociable too because I was just happy. Mm. And gradually I ended up getting in a relationship with an older woman. She was about 17 years older than me. I was. Uh, I was working as a delivery boy, basically, for a grocery store. And I met this woman who I knocked on her door. And she goes, do I know you? And I go, yeah, from your dreams. <laughs> oh, come on. I saw I know, that movie. I know, it was so cheesy. <laughs> but it got her laughing. And I'd actually, a week before, I had had to re-deliver a bottle of wine. And she'd been kind of pissed. And I was like, hey, it's not, like, whatever. Why are you pissed about this? So that was the second time I met her. And I delivered the groceries and I got her number. Well, when I got off work, I was texting her and she was kind of giving me the, the push off like, oh yeah, maybe we'll hang out. And I said, just let me come over right now. 
she says, okay. So I go over to her house, you know, we, we, we do our thing, and that kind of started a very tumultuous relationship with this woman. And she was beautiful, um, crazy, wild, did a lot of, you know, was in, wanted to do the, the, the drugs with me, but she was very unstable emotionally. And it ended up being a really traumatic relationship over two years where it was on and off all the time. And uh, whenever things got bad with her, I would end up going and smoking heroin. So eventually I was doing it more and more and found myself physically addicted. And so I still felt like I could get over it. And I told my parents, I said, hey, I'm experimenting with heroin. And they just were like, okay, you know, good luck. I remember my dad saying, tell me how that goes, you know, let me know how that turns out. Uh, but they didn't say, don't do it. They didn't give me any kind of advice. They're just like, all right, do your thing, whatever. <laughs> so, you know, the first little bit of being addicted was tough. I went through withdrawals a number of times. And eventually I, I started getting to the point where I couldn't, you know, I kept failing at getting through the withdrawals. So, I, so you went through the withdrawals because you felt like, I don't want to be addicted? I don't, yeah, I was like, I don't want to be addicted. I know I'm doing it too much. Right. I, I was aware of what was happening. So there was a discipline there. There was. But then you went back into it because yeah. you just liked the feeling. Well, and, well, and, and what happens is, is, you know, you at the beginning, you get this idea of, I can just do it one more time. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, I'll just do it once. I'm, I'm not an addict. I'll just do it one more time. You know, I can right. control this. Right. You have that thought quite a bit, and I did many times. And gradually, it got worse. And uh, there was one time where I, I wanted to get off it, so I smoked meth for a few days. Uh, and I ended up crashing the car for my job, losing my job. So then I had to start selling drugs and I had to start figuring out other ways to get money. So in between my times where I was using, I would get sober and I would go do medical research at different hospitals where I would uh, test different things for the hospitals to, you know, get paid. Like you'll go into yeah, the hospital. Guinea pig. Guinea pig yeah. yeah. So I guinea pigged a number of different things and I'd get sober for that. And then I'd come out and I'd eventually end up using again. And gradually, as things started to get worse, I, I got into UCLA because before my heroin addiction was bad enough, I still had really good grades. So I got into UCLA and I had a scholarship and that was great. And I was like, all right, awesome. I'm, you know, like a pre-med? Pre uh, yeah, I was going to do pre-med, but yeah. my, my major was going to be anthropology. Uh -huh because I didn't, I had done like chemistry and OCHEM and biology, but compared at UCLA, those are like the best programs. So it's really hard to get in. And so I said, well, I want to get in for sure. So I'm going to pick something I'm interested in that right. gives me a little better shot of getting in. So I went with anthropology, which is good because I love anthropology. Right. And after being in there for about six months, and not having a job and having to sell drugs to make money, um, you're, you're running out of money, right? Because you're, you're smoking heroin and it costs money. You smoke a lot more heroin than you would theoretically shoot. So eventually, I told myself I'd never shoot heroin, but eventually, just economically, hey, I had to start doing it. Hmm. And so I started shooting heroin and uh, Slowly but surely, after that happened, things started to really go kind of downhill. Um, 
Is it a very different experience? Oh yeah, yeah. Because it, it's what what would I describe it as? Uh, it's like like when you're making out right with a woman, or when you orgasm. Oh really? Yeah, that, so, that's the difference. So it's like concentrated Boom, rush. Just, yeah, just immediate right. rush that is just so. It's, I mean, it's extremely pleasurable, but it's very short-lasting. You know, it's a few minutes that you feel that really that intense rush, and right. then you're then you're kind of well and normal. And I was one of those people where I wouldn't I wouldn't shoot up all the time. I mean, it was like four or five times a day. I'd kind of keep my shit together. I'd go to school, try to keep my life together. So I had to be somewhat functional. I wasn't just nodding out all the time. Mm. Most, a lot of my friends didn't know how serious it was, except, you know, they didn't know I was like shooting up in their bathroom or right. when I was at school walking out of class and going and taking my spoon into the, you know, going into a stall at UCLA and cooking up a thing of heroin. Right. Just ridiculous stuff that you end up doing because you can't be three or four hours without it. And things were getting really bad. I started to steal to make money. I was like stealing large amounts of things like electronics from Target and Best Buy and I bought like tools to do it and I was like all sneaky and you know thought I was I was one-upping the system and getting by but the whole time I'm in this just pure cloud of opiate addiction and I would try to go back home and detox. I tried Suboxone a few times, which is a maintenance therapy. I tried to taper down. I tried doing ayahuasca. I made my own ayahuasca on the stove and tried to kick it that way. I tried smoking DMT for four days straight, multiple times, kicking it that way. LSD, psilocybin, MDMA. You ever do methadone? No. Meth, meth, I tried methamphetamine a number of times. I didn't try methadone. Yeah. Um, so, so you... I mean, you were struggling against it. I was. I was really fighting against it because I didn't, I never, I, and I would tell people this when people said you're a junkie or an addict, I would say I'm not an addict. I said I have a bad habit, I'm not an addict. And what does that mean now? Does that sound like bullshit justification <laughs> or, or is it accurate? Yeah, it, to it totally was bullshit justification. I, I was an addict in the sense that I had a serious addiction. It wasn't just a habit, it was a serious addiction. I mean, so, do you? Where do you stand on the disease model of addiction? Um, I mean, it, you can call it a disease if you want, but if you're going to call it a disease, then you have to understand that it's not just a, a chemical imbalance. It's not just your your brain being hijacked. It's a sociocultural disease. It's an mm. emotional disease. It's a spiritual disease right. more than anything. Okay. And that's why I was telling you about the, my relationship with that woman because all that trauma that I experienced, all that pain and suffering, and the opiates caused my emotions to be all over the place, the, essentially I just kept burying all of that in. I just kept internalizing it and causing these wounds of pain and, and misery, just stuffing them down. So that even when I would get clean for a few weeks, I still felt like in pain. I still was not normal. I never felt normal. And that was the problem is after, after that whole idea of I can do it just once again, was I, I'd exhausted that curiosity. Even when I get clean then, I, I wouldn't be normal for weeks or a month at a time. I didn't feel normal. And eventually I just got tired of not feeling normal and I'd end up using it. Yeah, so you're normal. And, and maybe that's, this is a, a, a good description of addiction, right? Where your normal becomes 
being high. Yeah. Well, because because the real normal is eventually becomes so painful, and there's so much inner turmoil going on. Right. That you wake up in the morning and you're depressed, and you have no motivation. You have right. no no purpose or no kind of exuberance for life. And that's hard. That's hard to live like that. I mean, people people that are mentally ill that are dealing with depression yeah. have the same kind of experience. Right. Except they don't resort to a medication you, until they do. But it's the same thing. Or suicide. You know? Yeah. Or, or suicide. Cutting. Or, yeah. yeah. You, you you're so you, you just have no outlet, and it's not yeah. resolving, and you don't know how to resolve it. It's a problem. And so, I I remember because I was so interested in psychedelics, and I still was, I remember reading about Ibogaine on Arrowhead. Arrowhead, great, yeah. great website. Beautiful website, I'm so grateful to those guys. Arrowhead, E-R-O-W-I-D dot org, right? Yeah. yeah, for anyone who's interested in learning more about any any mind-altering plant or substance, whatever, it's a just a judgment-free, it's like a giant online library yeah. of beautiful database. Anything you you would want to know, uh, yeah, I've I've used it for years. It's a wonderful website. There was just a profile in the New Yorker. Yeah, I read of, that of about the Earth couple. and Fire. Yeah, yeah it's great. It's, they're, they're fascinating. Yeah, really cool. <laughs> so they sound like a really cool couple too. <laughs> yeah. Really funny. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry we we interrupted your flow there. Yeah. No, it's fine. So. I had known about ibogaine for quite a while, but it, there was this. I didn't hadn't really looked into the anti-addictive potential of it. I mm. just recognized it as a really powerful psychedelic that could possibly kill you. And you had tried ayahuasca, and you tried DMT, and so you, you sort of had a sense. It sounds like that. I did. I need to like reset. Shift this. Yeah. yeah. Some some kind of psychological shift had to happen. And were you getting any help from ayahuasca or DMT? Yeah, or they acid they were, they. And, and I explain this to people in this way that those things provide a, a temporary reprieve. They, in, when you're in the state, you recognize, oh man, there's so much more and there's beauty and you're happy. But a lot of times you come out of it and you're still sick. Right. You're still physically sick afterwards, which is tough to deal with. And still there's not like a, there was never like a moment where I was really able to let go of the pain through any of those experiences. I do know some people though have been successful with ayahuasca, but a lot of times to do ayahuasca, you're supposed to not be on the drugs beforehand. Right. That wasn't the case with me, but you're supposed to not be on the drugs beforehand, and then you're, you know, you hope that you you're not sick, or you can get through the physical withdrawals too. Right. Because that's another component that they don't handle. Yeah. So I never was able to kind of clear all of it. Right. And uh, so yeah, I, I'd known about ibogaine, and then. One of my last attempts at getting clean, I actually went and rode freight trains, and I think I told you about that the other day, yeah. was uh, a friend of mine who had been telling me about riding trains and living with homeless kids for years now, he just said, hey, let's go. And I was currently on Suboxone, and I was like, I need, to, I need to get off, I need to do this. So I just packed up all my stuff that I needed, way too much stuff, obviously, <laughs> and the next day, hitchhiked up to Berkeley, slept in the park in Berkeley, ate food, you know, ate the food with the, you know, the other homeless people. And then I started hitchhiking and riding freight trains through the Pacific Northwest. With, with this guy? With this guy. Was he an addict? He, you know, he was good. 
he was solid at that time. And was did he invite you to do this because he thought it would help you with the break? Or No, he was just, I told him I was really interested in it. Oh, Anthropologically, okay. it was something oh, fascinating for me. Okay. You know, it's such a marginalized yeah. group of people. It's no, really right. interesting. It is interesting, yeah. So I got out there and I was able to detox off the Suboxone because I was moving every day and mm. always going somewhere like we didn't stop there was never any point where we were just chilling anywhere right. and i didn't have access to anything so we're riding trains and hitchhiking and making our way through it and uh, i started getting better and i was like wow I'm, I'm getting better this is awesome i ended up after a couple of weeks meeting these kids in portland who were in the park and they were going to smoke dmt in the park there <laughs> And I was really interested in what they were doing because I was DMT was kind of like my that that was the one thing that I really loved to expose people to at that time. So I wanted to watch how they were doing the administration and what their experience was going to be like. And this kid told me, I told him that I was going through a heroin addiction, that I had struggled with heroin, and he said, "Oh yeah, I used to do that, but four years ago I did ibogaine, and I haven't touched it since." And that was like a real light bulb for me. I was like really and I you know I had some questions for him and I asked him I was like does that mean you just never were around it again and you never want to be he's like no I've been around it I've seen other people using it. I just don't want to use it and I was like huh okay you know and I was like well I'm, I'm good right now I'm doing well I'm, I'm on my my path but eventually I, I had to go back to LA after my month little my month-long adventure traveling on the trains which by the way is so awesome such a feeling of exhilaration mm. to not know where you're going the next day and be totally free and those Beautiful. trains are, are going through like forests in the yeah. middle of Pla nowhere places where nowhere ever sees yeah. no one ever sees like we, like we see the train going <laughs> along the highway and we assume it's all like that yeah. but that train we don't know that track turns off and goes, goes over the, the mountains, mountains. Yeah. yeah and it's like you got a big movie screen when you're in that box car and yeah. you're just looking out at the world this, yeah. this kind of virgin world it's it's pretty awesome uh, but i got back to la and shortly within a few days ended up using again mm. because just my social environment and again when I was back in LA that kind of non-normal feeling because I was not moving all the time right came back so then I was back at it and uh, again I started stealing I was back in the same thing mm. and I flunked I, well, I didn't flunk out but I failed that semester at UCLA for the first time I'd really failed anything school-wise I failed that semester and around beginning of December of, let's see, it was 20, 2011 going into 2012. Beginning of December, I started looking into places to do Ibogaine, but I didn't have the money to do it. So my goal was to steal enough money, you know, steal enough and sell enough stuff to get the money to go do Ibogaine. So I spent all December doing that, but wasn't making any, any progress. So I was like, well, I wanted to go to Vegas for 2012 because 2012 was going to be a big, big year, right? The Mayan calendar, that kind of stuff. Oh, right. So I was like, I'm going to go to Vegas and do MDMA and acid on the strip and have this cool experience. <laughs> <laughs> and on, on New Year's Day or the New Year's Eve, the day, during the day, I was like, well, I'm going to go into Target really quick and I'm going to go steal a thousand bucks worth of stuff just to make this trip even out financially go in there, I do my thing, and as I'm coming out, a cop comes in, and he says, hold on, 
and I try to run from him, and he grabs me and slams me up against the window. And you got stuff like under a coat or something? I didn't. You no. Know, what I what I would do, and I don't know if it's good to say this, but uh-huh. <laughs> I, I won't get into the details. Yeah. But but I would uh, I would steal small electronics, and then I, yeah, I would sneak them out in a certain way. Mm. And so I'd have about a thousand dollars worth of stuff. So that's a it's a felony. It's grand yeah. larceny. Yeah. And so I get locked up. And I'm so scared. Had he been called, or did he just notice yeah, something? Yeah, someone, someone saw me uh, doing my thing. And that was the first time you'd been busted? For that, at that, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I'm locked up, and I'm going through the process. And I'm so scared because I'm going to be going through withdrawals. And it's like a Friday or something, or a Thursday, and their courts aren't going to be in until Monday. Right. So I'm going to have to spend four days in jail. So I'm just, I'm shitting bricks. I'm like... Oh shit! This is so bad. Like I can't believe this is gonna happen. Fucking Mayans. <laughs> Fucking Mayans. <laughs> so, crazy enough, they're they're asking me about who I am, and I tell them I'm a UCLA student. I have all this good stuff going for me, and somehow I remembered my ex-girlfriend, the girl that I was telling you about, who I hadn't talked to in a year. I remembered her number. The in tumultuous forty-year-old. And the lady that I'm talking to calls her to verify this stuff, and she answers on New Year's Eve this random number from Vegas right. and verifies that I'm telling the truth. So I might get let out, I'm hoping, on my own recognizance. That's what I'm praying for. So I tell them, though, I tell the, the counselor, I say, I need to go in the detox cell because I've been taking prescription meds, right? I didn't tell them I was a heroin addict. I'm just like, because I didn't want to pull that one out. Right. So they put me in a detox cell and I'm chilling with these other dudes and I'm there for, for the whole afternoon and the evening and I remember watching, you know, there's this little shitty TV in the corner and the ball's getting ready to drop, they're doing the whole thing and I'm just like, fuck this. I just go lay in the corner and I had a little, a little Xanax in that little pocket of my jeans mm, that they didn't The watch get. pocket? Yeah, the little watch yeah. pocket and I crush it up on the floor and I snort it and I just conk out in the corner, the, the toilets to my in front of me. Everyone's sitting in their little spots, You're and I fall asleep. You're snorting Xanax on a prison cell <laughs> jail, floor. Jail cell, yeah. Jail cell floor, a New Year's Eve. <laughs> nice, nice. You're living the high life. Yeah, huh? it was it was awesome. A lot of fun. A really fun time. <laughs> so I I conk out. Yeah. About two thirty in the morning, they call my name, and I wake up like in a in a complete like daze. Right. And I get up and I start stumbling out of the cell, and all the other guys are laughing because they think I'm drunk. And I'm like, can't you know? I'm I'm way in. I mean, the Xanax has got me pretty kind of fucked up. Uh, but I got let out, and so I called the guy I was staying with, go back to his house. I use in Vegas. Better, in Vegas. Mm. And then I head back to LA the next day. I catch a bus, and I'm like. Okay, I, I have to do something now. Do you have a court date or something? Yeah, they said, yeah, I have a court date in like, I think it was February or March. Right. Um, and it was my first felony. I had had a number of misdemeanors for disorderly conduct and trespassing and minor stealing offenses, all kinds of shit. Because I got arrested on the trains for trespassing right. and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But, anyways, I get back to LA and I'm like, I gotta do something now. Like, I can't wait anymore. So I'm, I'm starting to try to appeal to people that I know, see if I can borrow money, but I don't want to tell everyone how bad this is, and I don't want to ask my family for money because, one, I don't think they have it. I don't think they would be able to provide that for me. So fortunately, strangely enough, I got another check from UCLA, which was my next semester. 
So I, I was on academic probation and I, they give you one more semester to kind of fix your shit, right? Mm. So they gave me the money, the, the scholarship money, the loan money, which eventually was not a scholarship because I had to pay it back because I was on academic probation, but it was right. just enough. It was like $5,000. So I call up the first place that come, that's in my phone from before and I just, the first place that answers and that says, yeah, we'll take you. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna be there in two days. For the Ibogaine therapy. Yeah, for the Ibogaine. Mm -hmm. So I get on a bus, I use, you know, at Union Station in LA, I get on a bus and I head down to Mexico. And I get down to Mexico and I get out and I walk across the border with these people that pick me up and I get in the woman's car and I just start bawling. I'm just, I'm so distraught. And before that, before I'd even gone down, I had contemplated suicide. It was a very serious contemplation. I had a gun, I had gotten it out many times. Why did you have a gun? Because I just, I grew up with guns. You know, I grew up shooting. In the, in the woods in North Carolina, you just, you're used to guns. So, but you're in LA. But I'm in LA. And where'd you get the gun? It was my father's. Oh, you brought yeah, it with I you? I brought it with me. A pistol? So, yeah, it was a little 38 special, a little snub nose 38. And I also had a shotgun. I bought a lot of stupid stuff when I was in my addiction. Just, that was part of it. You just end up spending and buying stupid crap and. So the, the suicidal thoughts, was it, was was it triggered or, or generated by feeling like I've lost control and I can't get it back? Exactly. Yeah, uh -huh. I was hopeless. I, I literally was just, because I tried so many things and I finally was accepting the fact that I was an addict and that was really difficult for me. And so, you know, it was, my, my, my thought was that if this Ibogaine doesn't work, the gun's still gonna be there. Because mm. I'm not gonna go on, I'm not, I'm not gonna continue this. I don't wanna continue this. Right. So I get down there, for two days I'm kinda laid up, sick, withdrawing a little bit, which doesn't normally happen, but the situation I was in, the place I went to, was kinda low, little low grade, little, dang, you know, dingy, dank, mm. <laughs> little house in Mexico. A little sketchy. <laughs> little yeah. gross moldy smelling house nice and for two days i'm kind of just with my thoughts detoxing laying in bed not eating just just hoping that this upcoming thing works this treatment and then they give me the ibogaine on a sunday night i think it was january 10th or 11th sometime around there and uh i take it and my withdrawals go away and i'm like all right that's cool but i'm expecting this this brilliant visionary experience right and none of that's happening and i'm thinking oh fuck did i just get ripped off did i just spend my whole my whole load on right. something that's not going to work and i'm laying there for a few hours thinking fuck i just i just blew it you know and then all of a sudden this this thing happens where and i call it you know my epiphany my moment of clarity where suddenly i realize and just it comes on me like a force and i just let go, I just release all the pain and I forgive myself. And, uh, you know, I just started weeping and weeping and all of this suffering and pain that I'd felt and all the inflicting, you know, everything I'd f caused to myself, it wasn't from anywhere externally, it was all internal, yeah. is just suddenly resolved and I'm just letting it all out in this cathartic moment which probably lasted maybe a couple hours I don't know time-wise right. 
and that was that's the extent of it. I don't remember anything else other than the the vomiting that happened, which was kind of traumatic because it was like buzz saws going through my head, and it was like exercising demons and getting out all this vileness. Mm. And then the next day, I kind of come to, I'm not on the Ibogaine anymore, but I'm really wiped out physically. Yeah. I'm not in withdrawals, but I'm, I'm just so physically exhausted that it's a challenge to even go to the bathroom. I, I tried to take a shower, and I fell down in the shower. I could Oof. barely even stand up. Wow. So for two days, I'm just, just wiped, and I can't sleep. So I'm just really tired. Yeah. And finally, after two days, I was like, I have to sleep. I need some medication to help me sleep. And they give me something, and I slept. And I woke up the next morning at about 6 o'clock. No one was up. And I went, and I was like, I got up, and I went to make breakfast, and I took a shower, and I felt like I hadn't felt in years, maybe my whole life, I don't know. But I was, it was gone. Mm. It was a miracle. It was a straight-up miracle in my book for me because it was gone. Mm. And at that moment, I was like, it's over. The addiction's over, I'm not an addict. Mm. I knew I wasn't an addict. <laughs> I suffered from addiction, I had an addiction, and I had been an addict, but I was not, that wasn't, that didn't define me as a person. Right. And so I met this kid down there who wanted to you know, we, we became friends and he talked to me and I told him how I was so interested in psychedelics and I was interested in MAPS, which is a great organization for yeah. psychedelic studies. It's MAPS.org. Rick Doblin. Rick Doblin. Been on this podcast. Oh, yeah. 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 Great. Rick's a great guy. He's yeah. fascinating to talk to. Yeah. And um, so I, my plan was to go work for MAPS. That's, and so I told my friend about this, my new friend. And he goes, well, why don't we just do this? Why don't we start a clinic? Because what they're doing here, we can do that. Mm. You know, have a little dingy house and give people Ibogaine and like have nurses and doctors and do it. And I, I didn't even think about it. I just said yes. Right. And so this guy came back to me, to LA with me. He moved into my house. He helped me clean out all my needles and all my paraphernalia. And he helped me start create my life and, and really start to fix my life. I basically started selling everything I had, my guns, all my collections, everything that I had, my car. I started getting rid of everything, and I built a website, and I started making this business. And was this guy in the program? He was. He was a week ahead of me. He had done it a week before for... Uh, and he had the same experience. Yeah. Well, he did it for alcoholism, uh -huh. and he had a very similar experience, yeah. Right. And so... We started figuring it out, and I went back to school. I had to go to school, so I was back in school. I was starting this new business where I was going to take people to Mexico and treat them, which was kind of ad hoc. You know, I had to. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, kind of <laughs> ad hoc. That's good. I had to, you know, I'd, try, I'd take off a week of school. I'd drive down there with someone. I'd spend the whole week with them, mm -hmm. like go through the whole process. I wouldn't administer the medicine, but I'd be by their bedside the whole time. Right. We'd have nurses there doing it. And so I was just back and forth, and it was so stressful because I'm trying to fix my life, you know. I'm trying to do all this, my passion, but my life is pretty fucked up, so I'm trying to fix it at the same time and go to school and... Get and the, back and the to the people gym. you're taking down are generally heroin yeah. users? Yeah, the first right. person was a, one of my best friend's little brothers. And it wasn't like we were treating a lot of people. It was like one a month, right. one every other month. But eventually I had built the site and I had, I had started to learn 
how to help people in that way. And so after a couple months, some guys came along and they said, we want you to help us build a, a bigger thing. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that and then I built a bigger thing. And then after about a year and a half, I separated from that for personal reasons. And then I started working with a project in Costa Rica for a year, which was a lot of fun. But again, separated from that from personal reasons. An Igo game? Yeah. Thing? Well, that was more just plant medicine, uh. ayahuasca and stuff. And then now I've just joined Crossroads about, you know, and I've known Dr. Polanco at Crossroads. He was one of the first people I met went after I did Ibogaine because the nurse that treated me, that was there for me when I went through my experience, the one that picked me up at the border was one of his best friends. Oh. So she connected us. Right. And then after, after three years, we've kind of come back and I've started working with Crossroads because uh, I, love, I love helping people go through this and I love being able to teach people the truth of the matter. Right. That they're not some helpless addict that is for their whole life going to be restricted because they've made a poor choice somewhere along the road. Right. And so that's what I do now is I, I talk with people about Ibogaine. I talk with people about plant medicine and entheogens in general, but most part I talk with people and help them make the right decision to get clean by not just detoxing, but by actually allowing their spirit and their soul to heal with these amazing plant medicines. So. That's kind of the, the story of where, how. <laughs> that's my life story. That's, that's the story, yeah, you guys got it. <laughs> the first 30 years. The first 30 years. It's been uh, uh, pretty eventful, huh? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of stuff in there. It's funny how when you, when you look at a life, I mean, I remember reading an interview years ago with Paul Newman in Playboy, I think it was, and you know, it was toward the end of his life, he was super famous and rich and successful and all that. And the interviewer said, uh, so what, you know, what's the secret? What was your secret? And he said, you know, I look back on my life and I understand that people look at it and it looks like I had a plan. Yeah. There was no fucking plan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it looks in retrospect like a story that sort of fits together. But it's but when you're going through it, it's just one thing after yeah, another. It's just chaotic, and I, I, you know, I tell people some. One of my greatest traits was that I was always curious. That was one of my greatest talents. Yeah. Was that I was curious and I was willing to be curious. And then now, what I tell people is, I say, you know, if you can, any, the most important thing you can do for yourself is be patient with yourself, mm. you know? Forgiving. Forgiving, recognizing that this is all a process yeah. and that you're not, you're not at the end, you're not at the outcome, that it's gonna keep going. Right. And just be patient with it, it's gonna hurt. It's gonna be painful, it's gonna suck at times. Yeah. And there's gonna be times where it's gonna be beautiful, but if you're patient and you're focused and you have the right intentions, and if you're curious, you're going to find yourself exploring so many beautiful things and coming along into your dream that eventually you'll get to where you want to be. Yeah. It just takes sometimes a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah, you know, listening to you talk, I, I'm reminded of something I've thought about a lot over the years, which, you know, and Cassie and I talk about this, uh, how, in a way, the people who get hurt the most are the people who are 
well, I, this sounds trivial now, I was going to say that people who are most vulnerable, right? But the vulnerability is their sincerity, yeah. it's their curiosity, yeah. it's that, I mean, I look it, at you and I'm thinking like, okay, you know, now that I've heard this whole story, like, you know, you really believe this stuff and you're, you know, as a kid, you know, like, I'm not just a Boy Scout, I'm an Eagle Scout, yeah. you know, and like, you're really going for it and, and you know, if you had been a, a shallower person, you probably wouldn't have gotten into some of the the dark spaces yeah. that you got into, yeah. you know? Yeah. Which is not saying be shallow, kids. It's yeah. saying that when you see someone who's having a hard time, whether it's mental illness or homelessness or drugs or whatever, a lot of times it's the best things about them that, that led them brought, into that mess. Totally, totally. And that's... You know, I was just talking to someone the other day and they were saying, oh man, you know, I, I don't want my boyfriend talking to those people and I hate those people. I want to call the cops on him because she was referring to her boyfriend who's talking to other people that are addicts. And I told her, I said, you need to have compassion for those people because they are so miserable and they hate what they're going through more than you could ever understand. Right. More than you could ever know they hate what they're doing and what's going on. Yeah just love them you know it doesn't mean you have to be their buddy or associate with them but loose your grip on that whole stigma of this is a bad person because in reality we're all good people we just have made mistakes and sometimes yeah. we get stuck in the wrong place right and we're feeling pain and we act out you know to try to get rid of that pain by doing ridiculous shit like drugs and well everybody's looking for meaning you know and yeah. and like the focus of a lot of my work recently has been on how meaningless the modern world is and mm -hmm. civilization is and so everybody's looking for meaning and some people find it you know in in being a navy seal and and yeah. learning how to assassinate people with the utmost professionalism and you know and and you talk to those people and they're they're not bad people no and they love their brothers you know and that's why they do it like they don't give a shit okay the mission is they just assume you know whoever's sending them out there knows what they're doing yeah but they do it for each other and so they find meaning and community and you know junkies in the park man they do they're that finding too. community yep yeah yep. yeah it's all it's all about finding meaning yep. well listen it sounds like you know you're in a great place now i am my life is and and i i and i say that you know i pe so people understand i i am extremely happy i'm happy more happy than i've ever been in my life and i'm fulfilled that i'm doing something i love but it sure ain't easy right. <laughs> it's it's still very challenging i still face the same challenges and struggles that everyone faces and i still remind myself the same things that i tell everyone else is be patient, breathe, relax, you know. Do you feel, is there any uh, undertow pulling you toward heroin or anything else at this point, addictive? No, I mean, I don't, I don't really do any addictive substances anymore. I don't drink alcohol. I don't even really like smoking weed. I still do do uh, plant medicines. I mean, I'm a very avid plant medicine enthusiast, and I think that the practice of using those medicines in a ceremonial and spiritual way right. has benefited my life and helped my sobriety because I do consider myself sober. Right. You know, even though other people, the, the current, the AA model might consider me not sober, my own personal take on that is that I'm happy and I'm sober 
in the sense that I don't use things that make me unhappy. Right. You're I not use, using something to get to normal. No, I'm using yeah. things to grow and to to accelerate my my awakening, right. to accelerate my consciousness and become a better, more loving, open person. So, um, yeah, I don't really do any kind of addictive, detrimental substances anymore. Well, good for you, man. Yeah, you thanks. found your way out, and and you're you're guiding other people out. That's, yeah, that's really, it's it's fun. It's good. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Life is a lot of fun. You just gotta let it be that way. Yeah. So if uh, if anyone listening to this is interested in exploring this further, Crossroads. What's the website? Crossroads Ibogaine. Crossroads Ibogaine dot dot com dot com. Yeah. And if they call, they'll end up talking to you. Is most that? likely, yeah. Right. Yeah. So you're sort of um, you're the been there, done that guy. I am. Yeah. <laughs> been there, done. And it's and it's great because you know when people make that first call, I always remind them. You know, they're like, oh, I I need to make this happen. I need to change. And I remind them, I'm, you are changing. Just by it's, making the call. It's happening. Yeah. You know, the change is happening. Right. You don't have to do it. Just by, you are it. You are the change if you want to be the change. You just have to realize that that sometimes takes time, you know, but you're, it, it steps. What do you say to people who call and say, man, I'm desperate to do this, but I'm a junkie. I don't have any fucking money. I, I start to work with them on figuring out how we can make that happen. You, you teach know? them how to steal shit from Target? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't advise that one. That's not a, it's not a successful route. It wasn't successful for me, even though I did it. I did it for a year and a half and had nothing to show for it. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, most people, there are people that don't have anyone to, to rely on, and sometimes you have to get really creative, and so... You know, I tell people first, first and foremost, go to your family, your friends, and and really, most of the people tell me they're like, oh, well, they're burned out on me. They yeah. don't, don't want to help me. They've already tried helping me. And right. I say, I tell them, I go, that doesn't matter. This is the last ditch effort. If you really want to change and you believe that you can change, right? Put everything you got into this. Do you get? Everything. Do you get? Because I imagine, you know, I, I know I, I have some friends who have gone through addictive phases in their lives and reach out to borrow money and you know you lend them some initially and it never comes back and then yeah. They, and yeah and you get burned out i imagine if a friend came to me like that and i have and i had the money i would say i'll pay directly to the clinic yeah. i'm not giving you any money yeah well that's the thing we always you know i don't want like I've never, I haven't really had that kind of problem, but sometimes parents or family members will just pay us directly instead of the person bringing the money with them. Right. But we have ways to avoid that. But really, most people, I guess I wouldn't hear otherwise. They wouldn't call me if they just took the money from people and then went and did their thing. Right. Right. But hopefully when people call me, they're really sincere. That's what I hope. And that's something that I explain to them. I say, if you want to do this, you got to be, you got to be fucking serious. This, is how, this has to be a life and death situation to the point where you do not want to live like this anymore. And if there's one thing that you're going to do in the remainder of your time here on Earth, it's to make this happen. Mm. Because essentially what's happening in this experience is that old you is dying. Right. You, are, you are going to kill that person. It is a suicide in it a is. sense. It is. A, it's a controlled death. Yeah. And you're, you're killing the ego. Right. You know, this ego that's built up all this pain and suffering... You're eliminating it. So, last-ditch efforts, you know. Right. Desperate times call you for desperate measures. Yeah, you gotta. You gotta let go. You gotta put yourself out there. Yeah. You know. 
Well, listen, I know you got to go look at an apartment. And yeah. uh, so let's, you know, I'd love to revisit this 30 years from now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I might not be here. Well, but. hopefully, I think, I think you know, my process has accelerated so much. I think oh. another five or 10 years, I'll have probably done a lot of, you know. All right. It's like, it gets shorter, <laughs> you know, the Tell time frame it. of making things Tell happen. Tell me about it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Charles. Yeah. That's thank great. you, Chris. Ashamed to burn the old church down A little complication slip of the tongue A little Bible burning in the name of the crown A little old dream I wish I'd killed her A little quiet moment when the sun goes down A little cold religion fit of a wise man Skinning a cat in the dress of a clown I'm in and out of chains like a porter through the rain I found my baggage in an old hotel Without any poets to its name Wondering how it's gonna be Two strong hands but there's nothing here for me A little bit of dark to make the children brave A little sweet Maria to be saved A little conversation, a mystic door A little blood to wipe up off the floor A little bit of shadow in the water A little bird song in the oil and the wine A little candle for the morning A little old dog in the ruins and the master's blind I tell it like it is I'm hiding phantoms in this old guitar And burn the window as I sit And dream I'm someone from afar Looking out across the hill I imagine an army running through the mind Of an old man killing The nightmare runs and the bells keep ringing Afraid of Chinese music, a little bit ashamed to burn the old church down, a little complication, slip of the tongue, a little Bible burning in the name of the crown, a little bit of animal in the spark of the knife, a little funeral at the heart of my life, a little dance with the dying ghost in my eyes, a little hand on the mouth of the child in me crying. I'm in and out of change Like a porter through the rain I found my baggage in an old hotel Without any poets to its name Wondering how it's gonna be I escape for a moment The world falls back on me And so I tell it like it is I'm hiding phantoms in this old guitar And burn the window as I sit and dream I'm someone from afar Looking out across the hill I imagine an army running through the mind Of an old man killing The nightmare runs and the bells keep ringing